0: It's summer in Japan, and we know that because my I can hear my mic picking up the sound of uh, cicadas outside my house. The uh, the deafening sound of cicadas in Japan. It's a, it's a sound that Japanese people associate with summertime. Uh, and I've come to do it too. I guess I've kind of sort of picked that up. I, I do enjoy the sound, but uh, I don't know. You can hear them on the mic here.
1: Yeah, I had a big one drop on my head today when I was outside. Um, oh, really? burnt himself <laughs> out, and, and he wound up on the ground after he bounced off my head.
0: Yeah, they're these big, ugly things, but I've kind of gotten used to them. They're, they're
1: only around for a little while, and then they get, disappear. Yeah,
0: they make a lot of noise, though. If you go into some of these parks where there are a lot of trees, man, yeah. it's like almost a deafening sound. Really yeah. amazing. Signs of summer. Yeah, the sound of summer. We got that summer heat, too, but surprisingly not terribly um, humid, which is very nice. Actually, I really i'm one of these rare people who enjoy the hot weather people are all yeah. around me complaining oh it's so hot i can't go out but um i rather i rather like it when it's hot i'm not a winter person at all
1: today was 37 just about that's what uh for american that's pretty listeners, 98.6 really <laughs> the body temperature almost yeah. 99 it was burning up that should be an fm radio station not the temperature yeah good old fm
0: days <laughs> 98.7 plays all the hits
1: Yeah, grew up with that FM radio. Well, it's the Sounds of Summer here on the Adult Music Podcast, and uh, we're on episode 74. Got any new listeners, uh, we just want to let you know that in the episode description, you find links for Spotify and Apple Music for all the music we're going to talk about tonight. Also, at the top of the description, there's a link to the full episode playlist. That's all the music in one place on Deezer, our preferred streaming platform. Can also follow us there. And if you don't see the full description or list on whatever app or platform you listen to us on, uh, come over to our host site, Podbean, com. You'll be able to find link access for all of the streaming locations. Now, if you enjoy the podcast, please do follow or subscribe on whatever app or platform you listen to us on. If you take a moment, give us a ranking or write a short review that helps us get listed in the browsing category recommendations, which helps us grow our audience. And we appreciate that. You can also now find us on Facebook. You can check out daily content. We upload some new releases. I had a bunch of them this week. Uh, New jazz Mm -hmm. coming out.
0: I didn't get any of the classical. I got to start promoting my classical uh, things up there.
1: Promote your classical. Other tidbits, uh, interesting related information there. I can leave a comment there. You'll see our handsome faces. And uh, if you'd like to contact uh, us directly with any comments or questions, you can get in touch by email as well at adultmusicpodcast, all one word, at gmail.com. And tonight we've got a special lineup. We've got an Italian explosion.
0: That's going to take some time to clean up. <laughs> yeah, look at all that sauce <laughs> Whoa, sounds sounds messy Oof. <laughs> Oof. anyway it 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 really was like that all week long, that uh that, that, that Italian music exploding
1: yeah, out of the speakers. We've got a big variety, all kinds of time periods and styles and everything tonight,
0: yeah, I gotta say that for me generally. Um, I always, I started out, I used to work at, um, NPR a long time ago. It was my first job out of college and I got a job as a, as a recording engineer. Um, shout out to Israel Smith who got me the job. He's still, uh, he's still on there and I think he listens. So I just want to say to him, he got me that job, uh, the, doing the mixing board for a show called morning Baroque. And this kind of got me into the, the habit of, um, listening to Baroque music in the morning. It was kind of a nice idea and it turns out that it puts you in a good place for the rest of the day
1: it's one of the few kinds of music i can listen to and do something else and i find that it focuses rather than distracts me because of the predictability and logical structure of the music so i can focus get some caffeine listen to that baroque music you know i can't listen to you know romantic era classical or something without being you know drawn into it deeper but baroque i can kind of do two things at once with and I also feel I get energy from it.
0: Yeah, I feel like uh, I think that happens mostly because it's of the um if you listen to an orchestral or maybe like a chamber mm. work. Tonight we're going to hear like lute and theorbo which is kind of um th- there's a lot of space in that. Yeah. But in um in in baroque music it's this this motor rhythm and there's just no there are no pauses and I kind of think that Interlocking kind of theme against theme and all this stuff and the the constant sort of like meshing together things it does something good for your brain in the morning I think it gets you started up
1: gets the squirrel running in the the gerbil running in the wheel yeah the squirrels is... yeah <laughs> <laughs>
0: That's right. That's exactly right. Yeah, kind of. I think it's the uh, ear equivalent of uh, caffeine of coffee. Mm. You know, I think, uh, and I think coffee uh, started to be uh, drunk during the Baroque era too. Oh or It was the Enlightenment after the Baroque, but it was uh, they were about the same time. I think. Here I am uh, showing you know conflating history again and uh, confusing my listeners. But uh, look that up. <laughs> anyway, the Enlighten the coffee was the drink that fueled the Enlightenment. I do know that. Mm. Okay. Um, there's an excellent book, by the way, for people <laughs> interested in history, uh, history of the world in six glasses. And, mm. uh, it talks about that. That's a That's one, a really yeah. fantastic book. I can't remember the author off the top of my head and I should look it up because it's not right to just say the name <laughs> of the book and not give the author credit. Being an author myself, I would hate that. I'm going to type this in. Tom Standage. Okay. British author. It's really good. Recommended. All right. Anyway, um so yeah, let's uh we, we didn't really get the uh the the caffeinated um baroque uh, music this week, but uh we got something really interesting to mm. to start out. Um the art the first um Italian explosion. It's not it's not quite an explosion though kind of is, I guess. The art of resonance. arch lute and theorbo music of the Italian Seicento. I love that word, Seicento. The Seicento means the 1600s. Okay? And um, here's the funny thing. So, the 1900s, where when we were born, would be the Novecento. Uh, now? I don't know what they call now. <laughs> I have uh-huh. to ask someone. I, <laughs> I, I, I should have done that before this podcast, but I d- didn't think about it. Anyway, anyway, the Seicento would be the 1600s. So, in, instead of uh, – when we talk about the, the uh, 17, 1600s, we call that the 17th century, a little confusingly because – of course, the the first century were the uh, were the O O somethings or whatever, mm-hmm. right? So uh, then, so then the first century you would be, you know, the second century would be the ones and etc. So we call it the seventh century, but the the Italians just they, they just take the the numbers the six and they call it the Seicento, which is very cool, I think. Anyway, the art of residence. This is music for arch lute and theorbo. The arch lute is a big lute, and the theorbo is also kind of a big lute, um, and um, they they have gigantically long necks with lots of strings on them. If you can look up some pictures of those. Um, it's really amazing to me that people actually carry these things around. <laughs> not, 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 ideal for wooing your lover on the beach. Let's just put that. Although the lute is, it's, it's got a big body, but it's, uh, it's a good instrument for that. Anyway, the, uh, the artist on this, uh, record is Luca Pianca playing the archlute and theorbo he is swiss born in lugano and uh so we've got that and this is on the Passacaya label which is in, based in belgium all right the recording of this um record was made in the oratorio di san rocco Amano in Tassin, switzerland so it's so, so we're calling this an italian explosion it is an italian explosion. it's all italian music but it's a it's a completely swiss production here uh, the Italian part of Switzerland, of course.
1: Sounds like it was recorded in a giant underground cavern. Uh, yeah, it's, it. a,
0: it's a big space, but it's not mm. a bad recording, okay? it's I, I rather enjoyed the recording. I'll get to that, though, in a minute. And I I actually wrote the recording, mixing, and mastering. was by one guy, Andrea Dandolo. Okay. All right, so on this record, we have um, 25 tracks, and the first 12 are played on the arch lute, and then the rest... Starting with track... Uh, I'm sorry, the first 11 are played on the Arch Lute. And uh, starting at track 12, everything is played on the theorbo. Now, if these are new instruments to you, even better. Okay. All right. Let's start it out. We have a few works by uh, Alessandro Piccinini. And one of the things I love about these kind of recordings is all these unfamiliar composers who just have these... You know, they're, they're all collected in these... Um, they were published in these collections of the time. And lots of research has gone into this. And now we have all these composers that we don't know much about and we get to hear their music and i love music from this period in fact um italian i had mentioned that i worked at uh npr listen to baroque music all the time and my morning routine has really started to edge towards listening to italian baroque music uh, which is earlier the baroque started in italy and by the time we get to Handel and bach the baroque era is towards its end it's 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 um about to give way to um well, what would eventually become the classical era, but there was a big transition period in between. Um, but, I, I, you know, there's still a lot of Bach in there, too. Bach has a lot of Italianate music himself, okay? So it's it's all, I don't know, puts the brain in a good place. Anyway, these are a little more, these aren't as complex as, as those Bach works. They're sort of simple because they're, um and, and in a way... You could say more immediately appealing just because they're they're simpler, they're easier to get a grasp of. You know, Bach will kind of um um you know, maintain your interest for a lot longer. That is your entire life. <laughs> but uh so will these though, but they're they're a little easier to kind of wrap your head around.
1: What I like about these too is um you know, when you get in the later Baroque period, you know, by the time you get to Bach, things are a lot more systematized and they sort of Set the expectations we've talked about this before of what we th- expect to hear in terms of especially uh the harmonic movement and uh voice right. leading, but this is still early enough that there's a lot of things that will surprise you in almost right. all of the pieces as it goes along, so you can see the the difference from early baroque into uh, the later period, yeah, little harmonic surprises, yeah, I think they're still experimenting with, and I found that kind of refreshing in this recording too. Yeah,
0: there's some actually I think Bach kind of in his Italian concerto there's a there's a piece for the harpsichord um, or keyboard, you know, piano people play on the piano too. Uh the Italian concerto and the the very first the three movements are very famous. The first one um has this really chirpy theme and by the end when it gets to the to the um cadence at the end of the first theme of the uh the tutti, I guess you would call it. Um it goes like, you know, dun, 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 dun. and then there's this this really dissonant chord that the piece just mm. pauses on for a second. And then it leaves it and goes away. And you're just wondering, did that really just happen? <laughs> you know, and uh, mm. uh, this music uh, that we're going to hear today here the uh, on this album, The Art of Resonance, uh, is sort of like that, too. <laughs> there's a lot of that. Yeah. Did I just hear that sort of things going on? All right, so first of all, we have Alessandro Piccinini Tocada Twenty. They they all have these um, rather boring titles like Tocada, Gagliarda, all these things, dances and um, techniques of the time. They're, they're really just labels more like than titles. Okay. All right, so I mentioned right at the beginning here, like what you said, there's a lot of like room reverb on this recording, but I didn't feel like it was too much. Um, the instrument and the details of the harmony are all clearly audible and the attack makes an impact, uh, even though this is a really gentle instrument. Maybe it could have been recorded a little closer, but it's close enough. This sounds good to my ears.
1: It's pretty close. You you get the nice attack, but these instruments don't have a lot of sustain.
0: Yeah, and especially the arch lute.
1: That room space allows you know the notes to carry out uh, longer than they would if it were in a kind of dead in space uh, so it gives them a little bit that's more that's probably why they did that yeah but, flexibility yeah, so. with the phrasing let things hang out into the air uh, so it's kind of a neat right. effect yeah
0: right okay softly played notes register really well very loud ones set off the uh room sound that you're in the space that's um it's being recorded and you can really hear them those loud sounds sort of echo in the room um so this piece, uh Toccata 20, is one of these lovely pieces where technique is explored. And the real prize on this recording is going to be Pianca's phrasing. You know, he's got a full tone. It's good. And with works like this, I mean, you could just play through them and they'll be, I guess, sort of boring. But Pianca makes them really come to life uh, just by his phra- the variety of um, phrasing he comes up with, these little sort of um, um, hesitations, these... um sort of um you know before cadences or sections he gets drama out of the material and his sudden loud chords he he plays these sudden loud chords at key harmonic points in all of these pieces and he makes these works eh, if not exciting at least kind of like it'll make it'll make you listen you're you're sort of wondering what's going to happen next like you're listening to some sort of um um story that someone's telling and uh Hmm. that has a few surprise twists and turns in it peachy um Pianca is really good at making these um, little oddities stand out, these, these these sort of twists and turns. He's, he's almost like a good storyteller, the way he plays. Okay, the second track, Tonata Fif- Toccata 15 by Piccinini, another toccata. Starts with a nice harp-like arpeggio, followed by arpeggiated chords. I like the very deliberate ringing, plucked tone that Pianca gets on the repeated notes after the 1 minute and 20 second mark, which is a nice rhetorical touch to what could be simply figuration i think Pia- uh, Pianca is always heading towards this he's always looking for this sort of this sort of rhetoric this sort of making this this music into sort of speech mm-hmm. you know like like it's someone talking and and he'll like vary his approaches enough so that you'll you know, he's he's almost using rhetorical rules it feels like to get the, this music across and this makes it really enjoyable to me third track uh, galliarda 3 a Galliard is a a dance, a very popular dance of the time. There are a lot of songs, Italian songs about the galliard. There's a there's a famous Neapolitan one called Daquila uh, Galliarda, which is about these these three uh I guess this dancing master that comes into town tries to teach all the girls how to do the galliard. He's, he's calling <laughs> them to come to his class. All right. All right, so this is a change of pace. The galliard, because it's a popular dance, it's kind of rather square in its um, phrasing because it's got to fit the uh, the steps. Um, it was popular in the Renaissance and Baroque era, uh, and very and it was very popular in Italy. Uh, the phrases are short and square. Uh but the melody is appealing, they always are, on these. Um the cavern and they're pretty memorable. Um the cavernous room sound is more apparent here. And Pianca projects the antique feel of this piece, something I really appreciated. I really like that it sounds old. Mm. You because know, 'cause it is. It kinda gives you this feeling of something being played long ago. Alright, we switch composers now. Pietro Paolo Raimondo. Uh toccata again. A uh, toccata means like uh Toccata means to touch. Uh, So a toccata is like you're demonstrating your touch technique, your touch on the instrument. Okay, so this one uh, starts slowly and rather darkly in the minor key. So a big change of pace from the first three Mm. uh, pieces that we heard. Um, I really enjoyed on this one the finger work in the main passages accompanied by a strong bass line. Remember, he's playing all this by himself. Uh, Pianca articulates both parts well and provides plenty of contrast to maintain interest. Um, and again, I mentioned here, he's a very rhetorical player. This word keeps coming up for me. Yeah, he's, it's like he's speaking everything. You know, he's trying to phrase things as though they're sentences and they're trying to make a point, except that there are no words. You're just hearing, you know, these sounds. But you can hear that. Um, and that making, it makes certain lines stand out by accepting entire sections of phrases, phrases. It grabs the ear. And that's really important, I think, in music of this era, especially if it's unknown like this. These, these pieces could all run into each other in the wrong hands. Uh, next we get another Raimondo piece, a fugue. <laughs> I want to mention fugues. They're, they're hard enough to play on keyboard instruments, <laughs> but a fugue is many voices, you know, independent mm-hmm. melodies being played at the same time. And there's really one theme and the, the, the other ones are sort of counter melodies. Uh, trying to play this on a lute or on a guitar <laughs> sounds really <laughs> challenging to me. Um, this particular one starts with a spare theme that resonates in the space. Uh, the Fugue has this descending scale pattern that make the voices easy to identify for the listener. And, uh, of course, we're in good hands with Pianca. He makes those voices stand out well. Next, I'm not really sure what's happening here. We have the composer Cipriano de Rore and uh, Giovanni Battista Spadi. I don't know if they, I doubt they co wrote this. I think Spadi probably adapted a piece by Rore for the um, arch lute. Rore is really um, famous for his um, uh, church composition, so for voices. I'm imagining this is a vocal piece that was. uh, uh, arranged for a, an instrument it's called Ancor che col partire which kind um, of um with you know still with my parting so it sounds like a sad sort of um, parting piece someone's leaving someone else and it was probably a song first given a title like that uh, this is a uh, melancholy theme um, fittingly so I guess given the title Um, Pianca draws out the poignancy of this um, piece really well, he probably knows what the words are, with his rhetorical phrasing, and a subtle tensing and relaxing of the melody depending on where it sits in the harmony. He's so musical this way, he's really always aware of what the harmony is doing. Um, He has a keen sense of phrasing that draws the ear. And uh, next we have three pieces by, or four pieces, by Pietro Paolo Melli. These are all, these also have these little titles to them. The first one is called Capriccio Chromatico. A capriccio is just something you just put together on the spur of the moment. It's just an idea you had. A capriccio, I'm just going to do this, all right? And this one, Capriccio Chromatico, is going to be a chromatic one, meaning um, it's going to use all 12 notes. Hmm of the of the scale it's going to have these half step approaches um the chromatic material rather blunts any impact that this piece can make harmonically uh Pianca plays it rather quietly with subtle slowing and louder attacks when a new section starts um, This piece sounds pretty knotty, you know like it's tied in knots, especially mm. in its second sections in the second minute that's not there's nothing wrong with that, but it 's just sort of um. Anything chromatic is going to be more intellectual than uh, emotional because it just kind of – you can't really do anything rhetorical because when, when, you just know what's going to come next. You're going to have this chromatic, <laughs> chromatic uh, you know, sort of melody. It's going to always go stepwise. Anyway, next we have a piece called the Galliarda La Claudiana. These all have little titles to them. Um, this is a pleasant galliard with an appealing melody. They always have these. Um the Galliards have a uh, popular music quality to them and they're meant to be danced to. Um, there's an impressive flourish at uh, a minute and ten seconds by Pianca. Listen for that in this. Next, we have Gagliarda La Farnese. This has a more high stepping quality to its melody with some dramatically loud chords at the end of phrases. Again, very pleasant with a nice melody there's a gorgeously quiet cadence at around the minute and 20 second mark followed by the new section. I really love that. Pianka's strategy in this piece, and a few others as well, seems to be to start sections loudly and gradually quieten up to the final cadence of the section, and it really just feels like you've been seduced, like you're you're just being left with this, this gentle kiss of a cadence. It's really beautiful. Track 10... Corrente La Sansona by Melli. This seems rather bouncy for a Corrente. I think of, when I think of a Correntes, a current, these are um, faster dances, and I think of them in Bach, and they're usually pretty fast in Bach's suites, but here they're not really. Um, this one isn't, anyway. Um, the second section has some impressively fast figuration in parts. Perhaps improvised by Bianca. One of the things I should mention about this album is Bianca himself in the notes. Um says that he's taken a quasi sort of improvisatory approach to this music, so he's sort of filling in certain parts mm. with his own ideas, and I think that's what part of what makes them sound so lively. And I'm thinking that we get an example of that here. Okay, a lot of these scores, they're, they're not like box scores where everything is filled in. And you gotta, you've got to mm. just. Play everything. A lot of these are just left with, um, maybe a figured bass that you sort of have to figure out on your own or, you know, so that's, um, (laughs) it leaves some room for, uh, your own composition. Anyway, track 11, Maurizio Cazzati, Balletto 6, or say. This has a pleasant dancing rhythm. Um, Balletto would be like a, a dance. Um, a uh, pleasant dancing rhythm supports this very appealing melody. I like the way Pianca manages a rippling effect on the arpeggios just after the forty-second mark. Uh, the time—this is—I enjoy this one. Pieces do this in the Baroque year. The time signature switches to three-four um, at about the fifty-second mark. This is a common tactic in the Baroque, especially in the early Baroque. Um, this piece is a set of variations, usually with the rhythm varying. There's a harmonic solidity to this material that reassures the listener. And I really enjoy the 4-4 four, four, to 3-4 changes where you'll hear the same, um, sort of, uh, melody sort of, you know, in this more dancing 3-4 than in the straighter, um, 4 to the floor 4-4. Four, four. <laughs> okay, so it's a, it's a, it's a nice change. That's sort of lightning. All right, we're on track 12 and that means we're changing instruments now. We're, the rest of this program is going to be on the Theorbo. Um, the first piece is um, Giovanni Girolamo Capsburger, uh, Toccata il arpeggiata. Arpeggiata is going to mean an arpeggiated piece, and it's a Toccata. So here the musician is supposed to demonstrate his his awesome technique with arpeggios. Okay, the Theorbo doesn't sound much different than the arch lute, it's, it's a little deeper mm. and sort of throatier in its sound. Um, if I weren't told though, I probably wouldn't notice that the instrument was changed. Um, in the lower bass notes, there's more of like a, a boinging quality to it. Like the bass notes will kind of go like mm. boing. Listen, you'll hear it. Um, it is a, it's like almost like a metallic boinging ring on those notes, the lower notes. Um, this piece has rippling harp like arpeggios carrying the entire thing. Uh, Pianca, of course, articulates the figuration and the theme well next by Capsburger again track 13 we get a Passacaglia which is going to be a repeating bass line uh, this is a rather long piece it's 6 minutes because there's a lot of opportunity for variation in a piece like this um, starts ponderously with the Passacaglia bass line that will repeat throughout I don't know that it repeats throughout but mm. it's it's at least suggested it's always there You, you got it's the basis for what's um, any melodies that are being played over it uh, we can hear the Fiorbo's, uh boingy quality here. Um, this piece has an austere quality to it, without much figuration happening in the variations at the beginning. We only get that occasionally, at a minute 42 seconds, and around 4 minutes and 30 seconds. There's some almost guitar-like repeated notes in the fifth minute. Pianca makes this hypnotic, this piece, in his steady pacing of the bass line. And I should mention in the Theorbo pieces, there isn't much room reverb. It seems to have disappeared, mm. <laughs> although it's still recorded in the same uh, place. I think they might have mic this instrument differently. There's a gorgeous, tranquil ending when he squarely lands on the last bass note. More Capsburger, Corrente Uno, one. A joyfully dancing Corrente in two sections, sounding great on this instrument. Very brief and a nice release from the previous, very austere, Passacaglia um casper again toccata say or six this starts out rather pensively but then settles onto arpeggiated figures it starts a more marked dance rhythm at around uh, the 45 second mark again pianka does a lot to make sure the changes in rhythm register with soft accents on the first chord or a subtle pause he has a wonderful way of signaling the end of a piece via a subtle rallentando and then this really tranquil, very quiet last chord. It's so beautiful. I just love it so much. Uh, please enjoy that when you hear this recording. Track 16. Capsburger again. Villanella. This is a, um, Mentre nel mondo che lusingier. This is a, a sort of Neapolitan song, I think. Uh, Villanella. Um, a song with droning chords in the bass. This is really a nice sound on the, uh, The Thiorbo. Um, It's a repetitive song, but we're in good hands. Pianca varies each verse with his volume, tone, and occasionally improvisation on the material. And this is enjoyable for that. More Capsburger. Galliarda 13. Tredici. A darker tone in this galliard, which is, I think, unusual, but it has the usual grace to its melody. There's some repeated note technique in there. And a great bass sound on the last note, very deep on this instrument. The last Capsburger piece, uh, "Corrente Sette Chromatica. This one's is chromatic. Um, the chromaticism makes this interesting. In this case, mm-hmm. it's unexpected, despite the title, and sounds like a modern song in the way the melody uses <laughs> chromatic passing notes between yeah. key notes in the
1: melody. Yeah, I wrote sounds modern, also when I on my notes yeah. for this one, yeah.
0: This just really leapt out mm. really it sounded really like it didn't belong in this period yeah. yeah in the second minute, we hear the melody with harmonic notes as well, probably in thirds my my ear training is gone to hell <laughs> I, <can't. laughs> I used to know these things just by the way they sounded not because I had particularly good ears but just from repetitive listening okay, the rest so that's uh listen that's track eighteen. listen to that it's like a modern twentieth mm. century uh work yeah, it's really odd to hear. All right, the rest of the program is all Alessandro Piccinini on the theorbo. We get, he he opened the program and now he's going to close it. Um. So, Toccata 7, a light, dramatic flourish at the beginning as the piece searches for its shape. Uh, the piece pretty much wanders through its length, throughout it, the entire length of the piece, to certain chords. It's got some deep-sounding resonating bass, which is what I found memorable about it as well as its dramatic feel. This is track 19. When I hear works like this, I kind of think of, because it feels like there's this structure of these chords, and you have to get from one chord to the other chord with the melody. And I feel like that's being improvised or something. Hmm. But it's really kind of funny. I almost feel like it's like you, you've got this one, you're trying to get it from one place to the next, and you have to cross this wide space to get there kind of Mm. feels like that to me when I hear these kind of pieces. There were a lot of them in the early Italian Baroque. You hear a lot of this sort of technique. Track 20, Galliarda 3. This stays low on the instrument and feels heavier than most galliards as a result. Uh, No worries, though. Pianca is light with his fingers, and this piece dances. There are some strumming of chords as well in this, which is something we don't hear on the theorbo very often. Uh, Track 21, Toccata 4 by Piccinini. Ringing bass notes set the anchor for the rising, searching thematic material. This almost feels like the theme is putting down tent pegs in the secure harmonic places. The bass would be the tent pegs. And once established, there's a lot of virtuosic repeated notes to the end. So listen to that. Bass notes as tent pegs for the (laughs) melody, which is the tent. It's my image for this. Track 22, Piccinini, Aria di Folia Romanesca. Okay, there you go. Folia Romanesca. We remember the folia is sort of a set of uh, It's a chord progression, and Mm. even a melody at times that's uh, improvised over. And uh, you can think of it as like the blues, the Baroque blues, the folia, (laughs) okay? I guess. And the Romanesca one is a very particular one that was used often. This is a brief piece, but this sets a melody over the folia chords. It's lively... And appealing okay track 23 toccata 11 starts tentatively feeling its way into a theme and a set of chords a very pretty light theme is established by a minute and 35 seconds or so the surprising dark harmony or a surprising dark harmony begins at a minute and 50 seconds and we get some interesting chords following in order to get out of it <laughs> <laughs> we're in this dark place, and you really take some chances with these chords. It sounds great. By two minutes and 23 seconds, we're in something more confident, and we stay there to the end. That's track 23. Track 24, we're getting towards the end now. Corrente 2, a very brief piece, energetic, light, and bright. And then the final piece, um, Chacona. A Chacon or Chacon is like a uh, Pasacaya. They're basically a, a bass line that you're improvising over. This one's brief, with a repetitive opening theme. Um, it keeps its rather shy, happy feel throughout, and we're finished with that piece. Anyway, I thought this album was really enjoyable, especially the Theorbo playing solo, which it, that's um, from track 12 on, as it's often heard as the accompanying instrument. I really like Pianca's lovely shaping of phrases and his way of quietening the melody, quiet quietening, quietening, the melody quietening the melody as i don't say that word often i don't know there's some words you just read all the time you never say them the melody as it heads towards a cadence i really love that it's it's it, Mm. it really just pulled my heartstrings i liked it a lot he adds a sense of satisfied tranquility to the works when he does this and he manages to bring a lot out of these words works with his phrasing every line and even the shortest pieces are interpreted like melody by melody, section by section, really a lot of attention has been played to these interpretations. Um, Maybe the loop part of the program could have been recorded in a smaller hall, but it's really no problem. Uh, The playing makes this album special, and if you're a fan of the material, as I am, you really should hear this.
1: Yeah, I wrote in conclusion, uh, meditative, easy, but interesting listening. Uh, Spacious acoustics make it especially relaxing. You feel like you're in this space yourself. Uh, but it's recorded close enough for the detail and then the space allows the instrument to sustain and hold out, you know, on the uh, longer held notes. There's a lot of variety in rhythms and composition types. And as I mentioned before, in this kind of time period, the shifting modalities and harmonies are intriguing to our modern ear. <laughs> because this yeah. was before a lot of the conventions and expectations we have now were established. And so some things like those chromatic pieces can sound surprisingly fresh and even modern.
0: You know, I've had, um, I had a composer. This is, He's a composer. I had a, a friend of mine who's a composer listening to Baroque music of this era with me. This is a long time ago. And I remember him like, um, jumping out of his chair saying, no, he didn't write that. That's wrong. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) Because you do have expectations, Mm. I guess. Sometimes you can be overeducated, I think.
1: Yeah. This has that nice mix of the mood, Mm. you know, with these solo instruments is quite subdued and uh, relaxing. But the content of the music is actually uh, quite surprising and draws you in with interesting little details.
0: Yeah, this is a, I think it sets a nice uh, late night mood, too. You might want to listen to this late at yeah. night. You know, get some, you know, sit in your easy chair, get someone to, you know, fan you with a giant leaf or something like you're in Pharaoh's court. <laughs> yeah, this would be good
1: with a like a glass of absinthe or something. Yeah, you know, it could work. Heightening so too attentions and listen for those yeah. little quirky harmonic things that go through. Yeah,
0: I really enjoyed it. Okay, now we're getting into some explosive Italian music here. <laughs> Rossini. Oh, boy. What does Rossini make you think of? He makes you think of Figaro, of course, and the Barber of Seville. See, si. si, Figaro. The album is called Figaro C. Si. <laughs> <laughs> it's with the question mark and the exclamation point after those two words. This is a set of um, opera... Arias, then, yeah, cavatinas, uh, duets, all sorts of things. And, uh, it's, it's the solo project of Florian Sempe is the baritone. He is French. And he, this is kind of interesting because, because there is a big connection between Rossini and France as well. I'll talk about that a little bit in a second. In fact, this is an all French production. Um, the orchestra is Orchestra Nationale Bordeaux Aquitaine and Mark Minkowski is the, um, conductor and this is on the alpha label all right first of all we need to talk about the album cover (laughs) because it's it's rather comical um it really it really sets the right the proper tone for what we're going to hear on this album uh it's rather funny it's a photo of Sempe with his mouth open like he's got this really impressive high note in full vocalization and while a bust of rossini smiles approval in front of him (laughs) Uh, and it's got a red background check it out um the bust um by the way is Senpei's own he owned this one um oh. his family had it when he was a child in short there's going to be a lot of comedy on this album but no shortage of virtuosity virtuosity and in fact characterful singing and that's the draw for me um this is Senpei's first solo album he's appeared on many full opera recordings Um, I have one or two of them, in fact. Um, It's also a very French interpretation of Rossini's music, and that's no bad thing. Mm. Uh, Rossini was associated heavily with France during his career and spent the last years of his life in Paris. And we're going to get sort of a sample of that at the end of this program. (laughs) Um, The lighter feel... The lighter feel all of these pieces have Make one hear the familiar ones with fresh ears uh, But don't worry, the Italian character Of Rossini's music is always present uh, How could it not be? <laughs> anyway <laughs> To me, the first track On this album is it, it When you're singing a piece like this The first piece is Il Barbiere di Siviglia The Barber of Seville mm. And uh, Figaro's very famous aria Largo al factotum della città Um, this has been sung so many times, recorded so many times. Um, I first heard it, um, on a Bugs Bunny cartoon when I was a kid. Um, (laughs) it, it's just that, you know, omnipresent. And you probably heard it on a Bugs Bunny cartoon as well, listener, if you're our age. Um, I remember hearing, this work a lot in the 80s by some of the great baritones of the day and a lot of them when they put it on solo albums when they played it when they sang it as in the opera they would sing it you know sort of properly as part of the character but a lot of them used it for um to show off their uh, virtuosity and this is a very virtuosic uh piece to sing there's a lot of um there there's a lot of real uh Mm. high speed uh hijinks going on um but this piece this interpretation is not like that it's very much in the character of figaro it establishes his character in the opera this is figaro's entrance aria and an entrance aria serves the purpose of introducing the character to the audience the style of the music is going to tell you what you should think about this character and this is a very bright major key uh, piece. It's it's really virtuosic, which indicates that the character is really um, capable. As Figaro is, he's he's very conniving and has a lot of plans. Um, he explains in the, the words who he is, what he loves about his life, and um, this is pretty much this. How he just makes us love this character right away, as we're supposed to. Anyway, the lively tempo introduces the singer, and he sings this. Yeah, um, Sempe sings this as an introduction for the character, not merely as an aria for display. And let me tell you, just hearing that makes me know this is going to be a good album worth Mm. listening to, worth my time. And in fact, it is. Um, this sets the tone for the rest of the recording. It's a very appealing performance, beautifully recorded, and the orchestra sounds very warm. Um... The orchestra positively bubbles as Sempe confidently lists his skills as a barber and matchmaker. This is one of uh, <laughs> the more enjoyable parts of uh, Figaro's uh, position. Um, you know, barbers did a barber didn't just cut your hair; he shaved you. He he, he solved a lot of household problems. He did <laughs> I don't know he did some work around the house, and he uh, he also kind of acted as matchmaker on the side a lot, as Figaro does in this opera. This is a tremendously appealing performance, perhaps the most appealing performance of this aria I've heard isolated from the opera, as it is here. Um, The virtuosity communicates confidence, and we have that. Above all, Sempe's Figaro is endearing, very important to this character. This is just such a spectacular performance of this, and it's 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 all in service to the music and that's what I liked about it so much uh, this this piece is often abused not here we get all the virtuosity too don't worry this is just fantastic give it a listen okay so we move on to the rest of the program um, the first we get another Barbara Seville um, uh, duet here Madite Signor Figaro Dunque Yo Son this is between Rosina and Figaro uh, Rosina is um, the girl the Figaro she's um She's being, uh, she's going to be forcibly married by uh, a guy our age, <laughs> and she wants to marry this prince who's her age in his 20s, I guess. Oh, you know, I used to always <laughs> root for Rosina when I was younger, but out I'm 56, I kind of wanted the, you know, <laughs> Dr. Bartolo to get his way. <laughs> anyway, so... Anyway, the uh, mezzo soprano on this um record on this performs is Karine Chaise, and she sounds great as well. Here we get the uh, recitativo as well as the duet, and we hear um sempre in his actor's mode. He's excellent and endearing here too, as is Desches as Rosina. I'd love to see this opera with them actually. I, this would be a video I wouldn't mind seeing. The spirit of fun contained in this opera is right on the surface of this performance. Um, it's really uplifting. And you have two French singers. They both have lighter tones for their voice types. And this really helps the tone of the piece. It makes it sound really light and very charming. I love this and the previous aria that we heard. I'm one over already. Really great. Yeah. By the way, in Italian opera, there's a lot of this, um, you know, subversion of the older generation, <laughs> you know. Which I loved a lot thirty years ago. I mean, if you're just getting into classical music now that you're our age, um, you know you're just gonna see your people get <laughs> defeated a lot, I guess. But then again, they were also aristocratic royalty, and at the in the Enlightenment, nobody liked them anymore. The uh, <laughs> the working people wanted equal rights, and they got them. Good for them. I say, I'm not an aristocrat, <laughs> so there you go. Only in my taste. Yes. <laughs> Alright, next we get an opera that I'm not familiar with at all. La Scala di Seta. This is, um, sort of, uh, recently sort of, um, rediscovered and, uh, put mm-hmm. together and performed. There's an aria here. Amor Dolcemente. Sung by the character Germano. Which, who is sempre here. This is a slower, more serious, uh, though slowly, lightly dancing love song, which I'm unfamiliar with. Here I'm noticing sempre's light, baritone more. So I'm having to hear this out of context. I really don't know how it fits in the opera. He can make it float above lightly, makes his tone float lightly above the orchestra, and he takes a nice pianissimo at the two-minute mark for the repeat of the opening verse. Um, Interesting orchestration as Germano sings about being sleepy. Discordant winds come in as the strings keep dancing in the background. It's well-balanced. It's a well-balanced... technique on this recording a real balanced sound i'm guessing that the character Blan. now there's another character in this staria named the and he has sung lines it's a baritone voice and there's no listing in the booklet who it is so i'm wondering <laughs> if this is Sempe overdubbing hmm. himself or if it's um it could perhaps be oh, i didn't write it down let me see who's the other guy yeah, I wrote these when they came up. There's another baritone on the album, it might be him. Um let me see. Yeah. Uh, uh Johan Dubruk could be the baritone, because the voices sound similar. I I really don't know who it is. Um It could be Sempe overdubbed, though, I don't know. Can't really tell. Um, I like the thumping strings for Germano's last verse as he explains to Blansak how to complete his assignation with his uh, woman that he's trying to hook up with. I guess we shouldn't use that term for the at <laughs> <laughs> they're, they're looking to get married and have happy lives together. Okay, again, the virtuosity required of Sempe here is underplayed for the characterization, and I really appreciate that. Uh, make no mistake, the virtuosity is there. And the orchestration is charming here, with its ticking away of the hours and the strings. Again, another uplifting ending. Okay, track four, we get to La Cenerentola, which is a Cinderella. Um, this is a duet, Un Segreto d'Importanza, by the sung by the characters Dandini and Don Magnifico, and uh, Dandini, D- Dandinius is, is Sempe, and Don Magnifico is going to be Nahuel De Piero, a bass. Uh, Dandini is the baritone, and he starts this out, That's Sempe, uh, stating his case with some virtuosity. Di Piero, the bass singing the part of Domenico, sings in a lower register but has a similarly light voice to Sempe. We have all these light voices, despite them being in the lower range of the, uh, of the uh, fr- in a lower frequency ranges. Both voices are very distinguishable, obviously. Great back and forth here between the soloists, as Dandini reveals he's not a real prince but a servant. Um, The musical material and virtuosity are starting to get repetitive at this point, though. All of this is done in the highest spirits. Yeah, Rossini used a lot of sort of techniques again and again in -hmm. his arias. He wrote loads of them in a single year. And uh, of course, it wasn't like today where you would just be hearing every one of them you know mm. people would go to this performance and in another city those people would go to this other performance so he could afford to like vivaldi uh reuse a lot of material <laughs> and this is getting a bit repetitive at this point on the album so we get a little break which is very nice track five il barbiere di Siviglia again the barbara seville the famous overture and it's a bit of a respite for us with the famous overture of barbara seville it's taken at a pretty fast tempo, even for this fast-paced overture. It mm. comes across as urgent and rather anxious in this performance. Especially in the famous bit at um two minutes and eleven seconds, the dum dump dum dump 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 da 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 Oh, I could just sing the whole thing. <laughs> <laughs> it's really great. Okay, so this is light and fleet rather than heavy and dramatic at darker parts, and that's fine. Uh, It's a new take on an overplayed work, and it works well. I also like the subtlety of the bass drum when it comes in for accents at the end. A lot of times the bass drum can blow you away (laughs) the way they record it. Not here. It's very subtle. It's very quiet. Its presence is subtly felt. Okay, now there's a bit of a change of uh, pace in the program after this uh, orchestral um, sort of interlude. We get... um, a chorus from uh, the opera L'Italiana in Algeri*, the Italian in Algiers, in Algeria. Mm. Uh, this is called the Vive il Grande Caimacan, um, and this is with the Cœur de l'Opera Nationale de Bordeaux. Okay, we start here with a chorus of eunuchs <laughs> <laughs> singing, singing praise of Caimacan, protector of the Muslims in this opera. This is a bit of a, uh, what Edward mm. Said would call Orientalism. Yeah. Okay. Popular at the time. Who turns out to be, uh, Tadeo, um, who's Florian Sempe, who's on a visit to Algeria and has been appointed to the position by the Lord, or I guess the, I, I guess the Sultan. They're calling him the Lord here. I don't really know this opera very well. Uh, the aria contains Rossini's usual dramatic chords used to suddenly change mood. I really like when he does that. He'll have this mm. big, sting of a chord that'll suddenly change the mood um you hear that a lot here here sempe manages to put across desperation and fear via his voice at various points of the opera he's an excellent comic baritone and always appealing we get another um piece from or this one is a duet from l'italiana in algeri uh, called i capricci della sorte isabella and tadeo are the characters karine de mezzo-soprano we heard her as um uh in barbara seville as what's her name there uh, rosina earlier and um she's a little fiercer in this argumentative aria than she was as rosina and rosina also as we know uh, has a ferocity to her but not in that particular aria where she's very gentle um, thematically as well as vocally we hear the two transform from adversaries to fellow conspirators and we get to hear Deshaies and some vocal acrobatics but again the characterization is pushed to the fore by both vocalists. Okay after this little more serious interlude we get um, the overture to L'Italiana in Algeri. Um, various reed instruments play modal harmonies to put across the idea of the Orient, in this case the Middle East. Otherwise, it's traditional Rossini fare, played in a lively manner and at a good fast tempo. The thematic material goes back and forth between strings, outlining the Western characters and winds, indicating the foreign atmosphere of Algeria. The whole thing is predictably charming and well played. Track nine, an opera that again I've never even heard of, Locazione fa il ladro. This is an air, an aria called Che sorte che accidente. And it's sung by uh, Don Parmenione and Martino, the two characters. Um, Martino is sung by Johan Dubruc, the baritone, who is a baritone. And we're back to cheerful arias that speak of love here. Sempe's character, Don Parmenione, plans to seduce a woman via false identity. How else are you going to seduce a woman? No one's (laughs) going to go for you the way you are, Right. (laughs) which is common in opera these guys always had to disguise themselves by the end we have some virtuosity similar to figaro's in Sempe's line as he decides on his plan it's nice to hear all these unfamiliar arias i have to say okay track 10 we finally hear um a, a french aria now rossini spent the last years of his life in france quite a few of them in fact i think he may have been there for I should have looked this up, maybe even 30 years, but I might be confusing that with Sibelius. So he, he pretty much, um, settled down in Paris, um, retired from opera singing, from opera writing, and wrote, uh, got super fat because he was also a gourmet. <laughs> so just look at some pictures of him in his older age. And he wrote a bunch of songs, also called, uh, Sins of Old Age. We're gonna be hearing one of those. Uh, there are loads of them. He's got like 11 books full of these, like, sort of french language songs anyway this is an opera this particular um aria is from an opera called Le Comte Ory and it's one of his later operas um he he wrote his last operas f- for french audiences this one and also the famous guillaume tell william tell with the famous william tell overture anyway this is le comte ory and the air is called the uh, the aria is called danseuse solitaire in this um lonely place sung by Limbeau. And uh, in this last aria, we finally get to hear Senpe sing in French. This aria requires a constant flow of French's soft syllables from Senpe, and it's an impressive feat as he answers all of the choruses. There's a chorus, by the way, Cœur uh, de l'Opera Nationale de Bordeaux, again. Um, they ask him these brief questions, and uh, he answers with these long, continuous strings of words <laughs> that, this works exceptionally well in French. Hearing this in Italian would be really impressive. I gotta say, you can kind of tell that Rossini subtly changed his melodic approach to encompass the musical traits of the French language in this aria. Uh, the character Rimbaud explores the castle he's in and finds a wine cellar, which he ransacks. <laughs> There's a moment in the middle where he gets to slow down and explore some emotion. Then it's back to the races and the happy ending. Okay, <laughs> so he <can>, get <laughs> he. Can, He's going to share all this wine with the people in the chorus that he's talking to in the aria, and uh, on the CD, that's uh, theoretically where the um, album ends. But there's a hidden bonus track. Now, if you're listening mm. on Deezer, this is actually listed, and thankfully, because I didn't know what it was when I was hearing it, there's no <laughs> there's no listing of it on the oh, CD. Interesting. All right, so it's it's just it comes at the end of track ten on the CD if you have the CD. Um, and on Deezer, at least, it's listed as a separate track. I'm guessing that's the case on all the other streaming services too, but who knows? Okay, there's a hidden unlisted bonus track, um, um, accompanied by piano. And this is one of the, uh, sins of old age. It's one of Rossini's French songs. There's thousands, or hundreds <laughs> at least, of French songs that he wrote in the last years of his life, um, when he was hanging around in the Parisian salons. Um, we can get the, one of the things I like about this, is we can get the full measure of Sempe's tone here, since the piano is rather quiet and plays mostly staccato. Um, it's a comic drawing room song called Le Chanson du Bébé, the baby's song. Uh, this is, if you want to hear it, this, is volume 11 of the Sins of Old Age, and it's number two in that volume. Um, it's sung in a baby's voice. The baby is the kind of, protagonist here and he talks about how good his life is with everyone at his command so it's like salon (laughs) stuff you're just trying to charm the ladies um it's funny um puts it across really well he's you can i think um what this does is it kind of it takes away the uh you know the uh I don't want to say seriousness, but the heaviness, I guess, mm. or the, you know, that we put, we tend to put on opera singers. Like we tend to put them on a pedestal. This takes them right off the pedestal. <laughs> um, it's a salon stuff. These songs are meant to get the crowd to titter, and that's what this song does. Anyway, all in all, some fantastic and fresh singing of Rossini here. There's a contrasting set of more dramatic arias in the middle of the program to set off the comic ones at the beginning and the end. Or rather, comic ones at the beginning and more like love. So, well, the, the last one, Comte is is a comic one as well. The material can get samey, especially in the first, after once you get to track four. Rossini reused a lot of his ideas. But Senpei's singing makes it all sound so fresh, and many of these arias are unknown outside of their operas, so it was good to hear that. I personally like context when I'm listening to um these opera arias. I like to know, like, why this person is saying these things mm-hmm. in, the, in the, you know, so I like to hear them in actually in the opera. But this is cool. We're really listening more for the voice. Uh, the album comes across as a whole as uplifting, especially the opening track as fresh a performance of Figaro's entrance aria as you'll hear. Uh, Senpei's lightish baritone is also easy on the ear. Yeah, recommended. it. This will put a spring in your
1: step. Yeah, you know, as any uh, long-time listeners, uh, probably you know I'm not much of an opera fan, but this was <laughs> uh, fun and entertaining. Uh, I found Senpei exuberant uh, in his performance. Uh, yeah. It's kind of infectious. And about his voice, even though I, you know, I don't know what he's singing about uh, unless i look at the translations cuz i don't know italian or french but his enunciation mm. is so clear that french, i almost feel agree. like i can understand what he's saying because uh you know it's that clear and he pays much attention to uh you know the way he carries the words over the music uh so i just was kind of drawn into his enthusiasm and like you there's a lot of material here it goes from extremely familiar with uh yeah Barbara Seville, and then other works that I've never heard before. I also liked the sort of palette cleanse of the overtures. Uh, they're spirited and played very dynamically by the orchestra. And all of the recording, the orchestra and the vocals, are clear and very well balanced. So sonically, it's kind of a treat to listen to as well.
0: Yeah, just a winner all around, I would say. All right. So for our last um, classical Italian explosion, <laughs> <laughs> album we have someone uh new to me i this is a composer mm-hmm. i would never even heard of before uh lorenzo perosi and these are chamber works we really did uh get along i guess um your know, archlute and theorbo could be considered chamber music as well, but it's a solo mm-hmm. instrument. We got some vocals, and now we have some uh, full-out on chamber music. Piano quintets numbers one and two, string quart- string trio, sorry, string trio number two. These are played by uh, Matteo Bevilacqua on the piano and the Roma Tre Orchestra Ensemble. They are Leonardo Spinetti on violin one. He also plays in the string trio. Hinako Kawasaki, violin two. Lorenzo Rundo, viola, and Angelo Maria Santisi, cello. And this is on the Naxos label. Let's tell you, Let's learn a, lot of, a little bit about Perosi. He's a pretty interesting guy. He was born in Tortona in the Piedmont, northern Italy, in December of 1872 into a family of musicians with a strong religious connection. Uh, during the previous two centuries, many of his ancestors had been church musicians. And I got to tell you, being born into a family like that is no bad thing. I mean, you're guaranteed work. <laughs> you're also guaranteed never to be rich, but you could be if you become a great composer. You don't really know. Okay, so you have you have that thing. You have that church connection to fall back on. Uh, Porosi himself held various church positions and was ordained a priest in 1895. Hmm. Uh, he is said to have written 3,000 to 4,000 works. This is another one of these guys that never went outside. Okay. (laughs) Making him the 20th century's most prolific composer of sacred music. Puccini said of him, There's more music in Perosi's head than in mine and Mascagni's put together. Pietro Mascagni is the uh, composer of the opera Cavalleria Rusticana, very popular back in Puccini's day. As a priest, he couldn't write for the stage, so there are no operas by Perosi, but he wrote operatic oratorios. I'm wondering if we're going to get to hear any of those in the future. Mm. In the year 1907, he began suffering the symptoms of psychological disturbance, that's all they tell us about him, uh, which worsened after his father died in 1908. He had a few tragedies in his life. Um, As his psychological difficulties continued, Parosi began to focus more on writing instrumental music. Um, As well as various concertos, he wrote around 30 chamber chamber works, including three string trios. We're going to hear one of them here. And four piano quintets. We're going to hear two of those here. By the way, uh Perosi died in 1956. So apparently he lived with these uh psychological disturbances like for most of his life and they don't <laughs> seem a to time. have uh Yeah, he lived a pretty long life. He lived I think into his 70s at least. What does it say here? 1872 to 1956. Yeah. That's mm. almost uh That's <laughs> getting. that's uh getting into your 80s there. Mm. All right. Anyway, But it doesn't say anything about his death or the last 30 years of his life, so I imagine he just kept composing. Anyway, that's what we know about him from uh, unreliable sites like Wikipedia. (laughs) Yeah, I think think Wikipedia copied it from other sort of sites that I looked up because they all had the same sort of texts. Anyway, let's start. Piano Quintet number 1 in F Major, written in 1930. This is a three-movement work. This one is a bit, pro. Eh, I don't think I'd call it programmatic, but a note at the end of the score reads, Rome 17, winter 1930, infinite grief caused by the death of my brother, the cardinal. (laughs) My brother, the cardinal, Mm. boy. All right, so it's a church family. Now, yeah, his father died in 1908, 1930 here, his brother dies, and he's writing this to uh, assuage his grief. All right, so the first movement, Mosso, begins with a flourish of arpeggios from the piano and a mournful chordal theme from the strings. The theme becomes very melodic and rather Brahmsian in its approach. It's very warm. Um, The second theme has a marking time quality with s'appogitura-like swoops to thematic notes below the first note. There's some interesting scale figures. Now, scales are going to figure a lot in um, um, Perosi's music. He tends to get from one sort of key to another via straight scales just hmm. running up the scale so that he'll kind of like establish that key and then get into it anyway it leads to a quick resolve in a new episode immediately following uh, the development section uses a lot of those ascending and descending scale figures we heard at the end of the opening theme and the recapitulation this is a sonata form movement begins at around the three minute and 35 second mark with the arpeggios in the piano heard again the piece ends, or the movement ends, on a gentle resolve by the strings of an upward-reaching arpeggio by the piano. It's a very somber movement, melodically interesting, and very short. It's only five minutes long. In fact, this entire work is 18 minutes. It's pretty short. The adagio, middle movement, begins like a Lutheran chorale. So it's got chords, and it sounds pretty mournful. Um, so when we think about that, when we hear those chords, It's it should put us in the mood of church. All right? the, uh, the chorale was associated with singing in church, um, and Lutherans sang these sort of hymns with these types of chords. Um, we're not as familiar with that today, but uh, people of the time would have known. The tone is still that of the first movement. Um, this movement is also short, about 5 minutes and 29 seconds. Some pretty unique, almost ticking figures from the piano and strings leading back to the chorale theme heard at the beginning. At 2 minutes and 13 seconds we get that ticking rhythm again, as the strings and piano alternate playing circling figures. Descending scale figures in the piano accompany the main material at 3 minutes and 30 seconds. Uh, there's some intriguing repeating string figuration to 4 minutes and 30 seconds, with a unique tone as the piano loudly chimes out chorale like chords. A gentle quiet cadence is approached, only to have the piano thump out the resolving chord <laughs> at the end. I wonder why he did that. Anyway. Third movement, Vivo, which means lively. This is kind of programmatic. It has a handwritten heading uh, on the score that says, Midday shines forth on the feast of St. Scholastica. And then later on, there's a folk tune that's labeled, The Ambassador Has Arrived, which apparently is the name of the folk tune. Um, There are also quotes from a mass that Perosi had written. Um, I couldn't really identify those. I don't know the mass in question. Anyway, Perosi's evocation of this midday is achieved by bright arpeggios on the piano ringing out. There are a lot of repeating figures, and this made me think of, way into our own time, uh, Philip Glass, surprisingly. Hmm. Because he keeps... Philip Glass in his earlier music had these sort of like just repeating figures, repeating, repeating, repeating. They don't do that in Perosi's music, but he gets similar sorts of sort of circling figures Hmm. that he'll use as sort of the accompaniment to the main melody and this happens quite a lot okay perozzi uses a lot of sequencing to build the themes in this movement what i mean is uh the the big um example of sequencing is beethoven's fifth symphony you have the theme and then what comes next lower okay so that's a sequence of that figure down to lower notes that's sequencing so in other words perosi will have these little sort of melodic figures that will get moved around Mm. and that'll build like longer themes Um, it's pretty easy to identify actually and it's it's surprisingly makes the piece enjoyable and easy on the ear it's it's not you know it's uh, not terribly challenging but that's not a bad thing Um, Perosi uses a lot of sequencing as I said I'm guessing we're hearing the ambassador uh, has arrived as the dancing theme heard in the sul Ponticella strings and clearly heard at 3 minutes and 48 seconds. It's very cheerful. Um, I guess the ambassador arriving would be a good thing. There's also something like uh, Westminster chimes in the piano theme we hear in the fourth minute. Uh, this movement has a narrative quality to it with all of its sudden changes. And that's another um, thing I noticed about the Perosi's music. Um, his sections they'll suddenly change without warning and he just has all of these ideas that he'll kind of you'll know, have these sort of repeating arpeggiated um material these these film glass like backdrops to the melody but then it'll go to something else and everything'll change at the same time so it's almost like you know panels on a screen or something like mm-hmm. that um this happens in all three of these works so it's it's not too hard to figure out his uh his game plan And that makes you able to kind of really absorb these works on a first listen. Um, Perhaps the repeating bass note in the piano at 4 minutes and 30 seconds is a clock chiming out of time. Chiming out the time. Okay, there's a repeating bass note. And when this is done, we hear the opening material again. And that's the end of this piece. Piano Quintet Number 2 in D minor, this is tracks 4 through 6, was written in 1931 and it was influenced by perosi's ongoing grief ongoing grief for his brother the cardinal this guy doesn't sound like he was much fun to be around <laughs> anyway it starts moderatamente mosso uh, this is characterized by a cantabile chorale like themes again choral are like chords and it should give you a feeling of church uh, the beginning of this sounds a lot like the way Brahms would lay out a theme, but it's a lot mm-hmm. less dramatic and more even-tempered in its dynamics. Brahms can be very histrionic at times, especially in his earlier chamber works. We hear the familiar repeating patterns in the strings that reminded me of Philip Glass in the previous piece. Uh, here, listen at a minute and 35 seconds to the string accompaniment, and it eventually that, that whole section, that whole swirling thing gets sequenced upwards. Again, at 2 minutes and 38 seconds, we get a chugging, repeating pattern in the strings as the piano plays the melody. At 2.58, there's a swell of romantic-sounding material. I'm pretty intrigued at how Perosi builds these fountain-like, fountain-like harmonic backdrops to accompany his themes. It sounds organ-like, something derived maybe from his church music. Uh, Bruckner did this, and Bruckner was an organist as well, so I kind of associate that kind of... um the, the f- swirling fountain-like harmonic backdrop to the organ and to Bruckner. He does it in his symphonies. Second movement, Adagio, has a brief, uh, this is brief, five minutes, starts with a plaintive piano chord theme. Um, strings then take turns shooting melodic vines over it. <laughs> oh. my image there. <laughs> I guess I'm thinking of wine. I was drinking wine when I actually wrote, <laughs> was listening to this and vines I think that, that might have crept into my uh, metaphorical image here. Anyway, the material varies as it goes. We hear an arching arpeggiated figure repeated often in the strings at the end of the first and into the second minute until a new theme is settled into at 2 minutes and 40 seconds. There's a creeping pizzicato and ringing piano chords are heard at 3 minutes and 30 seconds. Gorgeous chiming piano figure in the high end at 4 minutes and 20 seconds or so brings us to the end of the movement via resolving string chord and piano thump on a chord again. It's a very touching movement. Third movement is Vivo, again, it's just really surprising, he likes this lively uh, ending. This starts with Philip Glass-like, circling string figures, accompanying a chorale-like piano theme, very chord heavy. This suddenly stops and the piano plays a new theme, with warm chords and an appealing melody, which the strings start an interplay with. I like the way Perosi's material will suddenly morph into new repeating figures, as happens from the second minute on. In fact, this movement is characterized by these sudden and surprising and pleasing changes of melodic and accompanying figures. The ensemble realizes all of these changes with charming changes of attack and volume. They're alive to the whims of the composer, and that makes this a successful performance. As in the previous quintet, there's a sudden silence after a resolving chord that sounds like it could be the end of the piece. Then gentle resolving material comes in for the remaining minute and guides the music to its final resolution. It almost sounds like to me like there's a pause, the excitement just stops, and it feels like somebody's just coming in with a broom and sweeping everything up, (laughs) bringing it to its final cadence. (laughs) You know, I kind of imagine that last Mm. minute is some some guy coming in with a broom and sweeping everything up. Anyway, the end of that piece. We have the string trio next. Um, This is the last piece on the album. Uh, Number two in A minor, uh, composed in 1928, so before the two piano quintets. Also a three-movement work. And this one, again, starts mosso, um, as the first string quintet did. Uh, This starts with a flourish from all three instruments in harmony, with a nice resolve following. It's got a pleasant beginning. Right after landing on the tonic, the main section starts... It features some drawn-out melodic playing from the violin with the other two instruments accompanying, sometimes joining in for a full three-voiced harmony. On the recording, this is really different than the piano quintets. The instruments are placed widely apart. The violin is almost fully in the left speaker and the cello in the right, with the viola Mm. somewhere in between, more towards the right. Um, The voice, this really drew my attention a lot. The voices are easy to follow due to the width of their placement, so it's nice for that reason. Uh, None of the voices sound constricted by the recording, though, so that's fine. Uh, This is helpful when there are different ideas in various instruments. You can hear them all very clearly. Perosi is more resourceful with his material in this three-instrument work. The violin gets the majority of the main melodic material, the cello sometimes picking it up. Uh, He jumps quickly from episode to episode, as we've heard in the quintets. There isn't much of that Philip-like, that Philip Glass-like repeating patterns in this work. Um, We hear some briefly, but they quickly go on to something else. There are lots of reaching for new keys via straightforward scales, just right up the scale to where where he wants that tonic Mm. uh, note to be. A trademark approach of his, apparently. The piece ends somewhere in heaven, with the violin tremolo rising ever upward before the final chord, playing multiple times, enjoyable and melodic all the way through. The Andante, it's that middle movement, starts much as the thematic material of the previous movement left off. It's slow, with a lovely melody accompanied by ostinato figures evaporating into countermelodies and harmony. There's a long pause at one minute and thirty-six seconds, after a chord that simply disappears without resolving; it just stops. Then we get repeating patterns in the cello as the violin and viola play in harmony, reaching a cadence at two minutes and twenty-three seconds. A new episode starts after that, with the cello in the lead and the upper strings playing pizzicati. This quickly disappears too. In fact, it's pretty hard to isolate all the ideas Perosi puts into this (laughs) movement and his music in general. It all changes so quickly, though it's easy enough to follow with one's ears. I I understand what Puccini meant when he said there's more music in (laughs) Perosi's head, because he does seem to have a lot of ideas and they just come and go really quickly. There are all sorts of appealing approaches to the material. Perosi manages to reorchestrate this small group creatively so that every reappearance of the melodic material has some sort of surprise in it. A lovely, tranquil ending on three statements of the resolving chord in the second movement. The third and final movement is marked Animato. It starts with a dotted rhythm, like dan, da ran da okay, in the accompaniment, underlining a dotted rhythm theme in the violin, which the, I guess it's kind of like a, a horse... Galloping, I guess, if <laughs> you get with that that rhythm with the viola starts harmonizing with then breaks away to its own sequenced pattern, a lot of sequence patterns follow to generate the material in this movement. There's a new theme at a minute and fifty seconds, nicely harmonized with a fluttering violin accompanying again the quick changes of section and texture begin, always appealing and enjoyable to hear, always emerging as a surprise. As with the piano quintets, new sections are sharply distinguished with a complete change of rhythmic and figurative approach, meaning in figuration or melody. Again, at the end, Perosi relies on multiple statements of the ending chord to dissipate all tension. He does seem like kind of really worried about that, making sure <laughs> that there's no tension left at the end. You, you hear those final chords quite often. All right, so what will tend to happen in these works is one player. Will get a solo, and the accompaniment will suddenly change when that solo begins, and so the other players are getting a kind of accompaniment solo they get new material for themselves, so I guess everybody's happy all the way through these performances um the piano the piano quintets are melodic and highly appealing music that you wouldn't mind hearing repeatedly as part of your musical life they're easy on the ear I don't know that they're very intellectually challenging um but they're 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 sort of soothing they feel good it's a bit. The music is a bit quirky, indicating that this composer had some of his own ideas about music. Um, The repeating figures that I compared to Philip Glass are probably derived from Perosi's church music. They're reminiscent of the organ. Um, The music winds up being rather calming. Um, The composer has his own quirks, to be sure, that act as his fingerprints in these pieces. Um, The the music is mostly romantic, but you you can identify these pieces as his if you know his techniques. Uh, The String Trio uses a lot of the same techniques to generate constantly changing sections of music, showing a high level of creativity with only three instruments. The recording is clear and bright, not terribly warm. It sounds like it was recorded in a good-sized, empty space. And in the Trio, the instruments are widely separated, but still blend together. I think this music, um... It's enjoyable, certainly. It's immediately appealing. Um, I think it's something you could, uh... Sort of calm yourself too, maybe. It's um it's got a lot of a lot of ideas in it. Um, I'd say it's definitely worth hearing. I liked it. I'm probably gonna hear it again. I'm kind of curious to see what they're gonna come up with next in Perosi's music. If he has four thousand mm. works, they certainly have a lot <laughs> of it to uh
1: to put out. Well I picked up on a lot of the same adjectives that you did just when you hear this kind of chamber ensemble you know there's different kinds of atmospheres evoked for me with the first uh, two works anyway my first sort of uh, evocation is brahms uh, mm. i found it to be heavily influenced by you know brahms in terms of melodic themes and phrasing but that's just sort of as a base concept it doesn't get as histrionic as brahms does sometimes rather it gets very quirky <laughs> Uh, With these mercurial changes and his own little idiosyncrasies that are quite unlike uh, anything else that I've heard, you know, in uh, these kind of uh, chamber works. Uh, But they're very interesting. Uh, And I found it a nice balance of uh, it's a combination of a real romanticism sort of uh, basis of composition but then a lot of modern reaching ideas in the way that he launches from that base and uh, tries some kind of more experimental elements with these chiming tones and like the unwinding clock kind of image and things. So I was uh, drawn in with things that seemed familiar and then, you know, left to like what did I just hear? Uh, asking questions <laughs> about that, so I, I like that. Yeah. Um, I found it kind of uh, fresh and um, familiar, but yet wanting to listen again uh, to just figure out what I heard and then how it you know figured into the total uh, composition. And I'm wondering why we haven't heard these before, uh, unless they're just a bit mm-hmm. unorthodox. Uh, maybe they're or for maybe the time- not
0: knowing where to start. <laughs> yeah,
1: or for the time period, they're too. Sort of traditional, not right. modernly. You know, you never know what you know people were thinking at the time uh, when right. things are recorded, but they're definitely worth hearing. And I'd like to hear more of his works for sure.
0: Yeah, a lot of this music got lost because of the twentieth century's uh, right. foray into dodecaphonic music. That was like yeah. after World War II. That was the the only serious music that could be made, and uh, that's where classical music really lost its audience. We we yeah. tend to forget classical music was really popular. Uh, mm-hmm. Especially in Europe, but even in in the USA, uh, before the war, I mean, mm-hmm. a lot of um, it was considered to be high culture, and people knew all the big kind of right. repertoire works. Certainly, these are
1: accessible. Uh, it sounds mm-hmm. a lot like if you you know if you like chamber works, uh, string quartets, and whatnot, th- these will sound a lot like things that you know. But then they'll challenge you and surprise you with some different ideas that reach more towards uh, modern ideas. So.
0: And I should mention like Perosi's music. When you say quirky, I think it means quirky, surprising, not quirky, weird. It's really not weird music. It's it's actually or just very unexpected. Yeah. unexpected. yeah, unexpected. that's what we mean. So yeah, we're give give it a listen. It's kind of a charming thing. Good old Naxos too. Always uh, introducing us to. They gave us Rynitsky. Yeah. <laughs> now, now we've they got Perosi. I like it. Yeah, they they do a lot of interesting stuff. We're gonna have some more interesting uh, recordings from them. I think next week. Oh, okay. good. But I'm not sure. I've got to check. <laughs> All right. So how about that? We got through the uh, classical part of the program, and uh, we didn't hear a single tarantella. Take that, cultural stereotypes. <laughs> Only the exploding one. <laughs> Only the exploding one.
1: <laughs> All right. It's jazz time, and Italians are always putting out a lot of good jazz. Uh, they are. You, know. you don't
0: know, world. There's some good Italian jazz, There's so man. much so good, good
1: Italian jazz out there. We've had a lot on the podcast so far. We've got some interesting things uh, tonight. And uh, starting out, uh, a recording I heard that intrigued me from the track sample when I saw that it was uh, listed. I wanted to hear more of it right away. And uh, this is a uh, young and uh, up-and-coming Italian trumpeter at Cesare Mecca. We call everyone young, but that's in comparison to us. Uh, uh, (laughs) Anyway, he's born in 1996.
0: Wait, when Uh, we're 90 years old, we're going to be saying things. Oh, this
1: young (laughs) 70-year-old guy. (laughs) Yeah. And uh, he started playing trumpet at the age of seven, studying with the uh, Pheromonica Boscornese Wind Orchestra. And uh, by the age of 11, he was attending the Giverde Conservatory of Turin to study classical trumpet. Uh, So he started uh, rather young and went on to do uh, jazz studies as well. And here he is with uh, his recording. This is a great title, Shiny Hearts and Dusty Souls. Yeah, good title. Yeah and this is on uh, DDE Records. I have to say, uh, well, at least at this point, this is a digital release only, no CD yet.
0: Sadly, because I I liked this one a lot. I'll say it right at the beginning, and I want this on a CD. Well,
1: more on the recording and what is coming up with that later, but uh, as sometimes happens with these uh, digital only releases, uh, there's not a lot of information about the recording and who's playing what. And although the album cover has uh, photographs of all the musicians and their names, because we have a couple different sax players here, uh, I wanted to know who's playing what on each track, and I couldn't find it out anywhere online. So I did write to DDE Records, and they kindly provided me with the recording information, which uh, helped me in my listening uh, very much. So thank you, DDE Records, for that.
0: Yeah, thank you for that. I always wonder about that. What They just have it in a desk drawer somewhere? Oh, let's uh, <laughs> you know, just put it on the internet. Yeah, put it on the internet, please.
1: I mean, <laughs> yeah. it's one of the problems with streaming is, you know, it's horrible with classical music because you don't get any of this metadata uh, that yeah. you really need to understand. But right. uh, it can also be a problem with jazz, too, when you're looking at new recordings. You want to know who's playing what. Especially we want to know so we can give credit to the musicians
0: especially if it's a new composer like Perosi we just did I I didn't know anything about this guy before this and I uh, I was fortunate to have Naxos very good um, booklet notes to uh, fill me in on the basics about his life and music so Mm. hat tip there to Naxos there
1: anyway here uh, Cisore Mecca Quintet Uh, it's a group of musicians they're from different Uh, variety of backgrounds here. I guess they, I think he's active in Amsterdam playing music, so maybe that's the scene where they met. In addition to uh, Mecca, we've got Ben Fitzpatrick on tenor sax. I believe he's an Irish-born sax player who uh, then grew up in the U.S. and now is active in Europe. We've got uh, a big name on the Italian jazz scene, uh, Alfredo Ponisi, a well-known woodwind Player on alto sax here on most tracks uh, three, four, five, and six also contributes some flute to track two and then switches to tenor on track nine. That's why I really needed to have these album yeah. notes because there's, uh, you know, multiple saxes and uh, two people on tenor. Uh, we've got Tommaso Perazzo on piano, Carlo Bavetta on bass, and Marco Luparia on drums. And this is, uh, I guess on DDE records, they have separate labels and the information they sent me. This doesn't show up on Deezer or the streaming, but it's the Express Your Soul uh, label, which is part of DDE produced by Mike Generale. Now I got hooked on this right away when I listened to the sample track, because this is a Chick Korea tune. And it's called Chick's Tune. And I know this tune really well because it's on one of my favorite jazz uh, recordings. That's 1964's Blue Mitchell's The Thing to Do, uh, which has Chick Corea uh, on tenor, uh, Junior Cook. And, you know, if you look at my record collection, although on the podcast we talk about all new releases, that's what we talk about. Uh, But I think probably i have more recordings from 1956 to 1964 those 8 years mm-hmm. are sort of the mother load of jazz creativity of modern jazz that i like you had hard bop going on you had uh west coast jazz cool jazz so you had you know art pepper you had uh all these great players joe henderson you know you had miles davis quintet all the everything was happening all at once uh, yeah. In those eight years A lot of jazz listeners A lot of
0: jazz listeners Never get out of that era either <laughs> yeah, You could
1: spend a lifetime just in there yeah. uh, But you know This is a, a Chick Corea tune From that great Blue Mitchell album I've never heard anybody else record it And so I said Oh, this is great And uh, so what this album is doing I think it's hinted at by the title uh, We've got this younger generation Mostly uh, with these shiny new hearts but uh, in their souls, they're appreciating uh, this great music of that era, which starts out you know, with this tune. And there's some other uh, hints of greater things from times uh, gone before, as we'll get to in the program. Anyway, this tune starts out on the first track here, drum intro from Luparia into the Latin beat. Uh, that shifts to swing under the melody, just like the original. Uh, it's a great theme. This is a really nice tune. It stuck in my head the first time I heard the original. Been listening to that for you know thirty some years. Uh, the horns go through the winding tune, and Mecca's up first for a swinging solo. He has nice phrasing, connecting melodic lines, hitting some harmonic sweet spots while still leaving space in his solo. Uh, next, a tenor solo from Fitzpatrick starts with short phrases, works into some fast lines, getting down low, uh, a little pitch bending there too before the climax. Perezzo follows with a piano solo over Bavetta's bouncing bass lines. Uh, He chimes out lots of clear figures with exuberance in the upper register. Uh, Once more through the melody, uh, Luperia doing a good job mixing up the rhythms and keeping things tight all the way through. Glad to hear someone play this tune uh, once again. And nice. we're going to get a uh, Ben Fitzpatrick original, Ben's Recipe. Uh, nice title. Yeah, following Chick's tune, probably, yeah, right? Chick's Ben's tune, Recipe. Ben's yeah. Recipe. This is a sassy and bluesy horn line phrases over a stop time gospel rhythm. I like how uh, Ponisi joins in on flute in the alternating sections of the melody. Uh, it has a bridge where the Beat shifts into a driving swing uh, for a nice contrast, a uh, tasty tenor solo first with teasing little gaps in the phrases. He makes it dirty on the swing bridge uh, with some biting tone. Uh, Mecca's next on trumpet with a nice lilt and some sassiness, getting bluesy into the bridge making a nice melodic ending. They change uh, the beat up to a clicky, even feel for the flute solo which has a nice breathy tone, fun fluttering phrases over the swinging bridge and then going back. Uh, they stay on swing for Porazzo's piano solo uh, that has some nice rollicking tinkles and accented chords and also some fun left-hand answers uh, to the, what the right hand is doing. They finish it off with another fun run through the funky theme and a slow gospel repeat with a little more dirty sax at the end. Hmm. Now paying tribute to that era, uh, one of the great pianists and uh, group leaders at the time, Horace Silver. And here's Mecca's dedicated to Horace. Here, he really channels Horace Silver perfectly in the piano chords and also the tightly harmonized uh, horn lines of this composition. It's got the requisite contrasting Latin and swing sections, uh, mysterious minor modal tones and then major contrasts with that as well the melody snakes nicely has the sax shift to some syncopated backing of the trumpet line then mecha solos first very lyrical but clear tone he has some nice fluffy repeated notes and rhythmic false fingering fun added in he swings hard on the swinging sections adding a cool interval idea and finishing with some trills Poniesia's is next with an alto solo, has some burning tone going on, and a cool bluesy ending. Fitzpatrick follows on tenor, and then parazo chimes out some nice fills uh, at the beginning there. The tenor builds up some intensity with rising phrases and faster and faster phrases, some scoops near the end. Uh, then parazo keeps it bluesy and rhythmic, with a proper nod to horse Silver. Uh, they mix up the beat nicely, a bit under him before getting into some tight grooves. Uh, He gets some speedy runs finally, and a nice kind of Latin rhythmic high chiming idea in there as well. Very nice piano solo here. Back through the melody once more, and they vamp out to the end. Uh, Again Luparia doing nice work changing things up all the way and adding tasty fills. Track 4, Ponisi original Steve's mood. Uh, this is a medium tempo swinging tune with a happy melody in the horns. There's a big break before Fitzpatrick's tenor sax solo that swings happily over uh, prazo's punchy chords. Uh, Mecca's up next, starting uh, relaxed and puckish. Uh, he finds a lot of nice melodies uh, blowing easily with lots of space. Ponissi is next with lots of double-time figures and uh, some hard swinging final phrases. uh Purrazzo is... uh, playful with tight articulation mixing uh, tinkling phrases with rollicking lines and to finish it off they take it through the melody once more Hmm. we've got track 5 Mecca's Serendipity it's another bluesy silver-esque tune with fun slinky melody that has a lot of breaks for the rhythm section uh, to add big accents. It's nice uh, Art Blakey style snare work here from Luparia uh, with a driving backbeat uh, you would often hear in messenger style uh, tunes. Uh, parazo is out of the solo break bluesy and intense with a really attractive solo alto solo then uh, slinking adding a little cannonball utterly like uh, lick on the way uh, there's another solo break for mecca who fills it in with a uh, running rhythmic figure uh, he really builds this one nicely has some fun interval jumping ideas all through then we get a low and dirty tenor sax solo next uh, as the drums drop out for a bit uh, leaving him over the bouncing bass and Perazzo's chords uh, When the paria joins back in uh, he does some nice mixing up of the beat underneath uh, The tenor solo ends on a high wail, and they leave a big pause uh, before another run through the bluesy and winding tune
0: It was really surprising that pause. Like, well, yeah, what happened? It was a big pregnant <laughs> pause <laughs> But everybody just
1: stopped playing. Yeah,
0: pretty amazing
1: We've got another Mecca original Color Shades Swing gets a gentle piano intro from Perrazzo to get the ballad started. Uh, the melodies in the saxes with nicely staggered and harmonized lines. Got an alto solo first. It's sweet and breathy, but nice articulation to keep it swinging. Uh, then we've got the tenor solo. Melodic, relaxedly swinging as well. Bavetta's up next on bass. He has a very soft touch, like he's trying not to wake the baby. <laughs> That's the feel I got from it. Um, but he has a lot oh, okay. of melodic ideas and good swing. Uh, the Saxes sing out the melody once again with a pretty ending and some tasty piano uh, from Perazzo. Uh, I wonder why Mecca sits out on his own ballad. <laughs> he just leaves it to the saxes. Um, but it's a nice uh, composition. Uh, next is a uh, Perazzo original, the Rocket Blues. This one starts with a bluesy piano line horn answers to start out this cooking tune. Uh, they lock in together after that. There are a lot of cool rhythmic change-ups in the short melody. Fitzpatrick blazing out of the gate, uh, doing some nice weaving around the chords before getting uh, a more bluesy and intense thing going. goes on for a lot of choruses, getting more harmonic kind of things. Tension going outside of the chords as he goes along. The ending of the tenor solo has a cool arranged line with piano that modulates from F to G for the start of Meccasaw. Uh, he's puckish and bluesy with some shakes uh, before some fast lines into the upper register and phrases with answering low notes. Parazzo is next on piano, mixing bluesy lines, some harmonic adventures, and uh, two-handed figures that are really cool. The horns come in on another arranged modulation at the end of the piano solo, and then it goes into a new section with a different groove and some horn figures that end and give Luparia some solo time under the piano and bass line figures and chords. Uh, the horns join back in and they tie it back to the melody line for a fun, stretched out ending. This is a really fun tune. Track 8 as a Fitzpatrick original return here. It's a swinging bebop tune with a happy unison tenor and trumpet melody. Mecca's the first to solo. Perazzo leaves him over the bass and drums, uh, but he does fine swinging melodies over the changes. Here we've got a, a kind of a, I guess it's tenor, a husky swinging solo, and then uh, Perazzo. I uh, has some fun with fragmented ideas, interesting harmonies, and low left-hand notes. And then Bavetta follows with a bouncy bass solo before another bop around the melody with a nice uh, slow up on the end with some trills from Mecca. Then track nine, a Ponisi original, Tenor's Feet. And so here's where Ponisi switches to tenor, and a la the title, you've got two tenors. Uh, It's a drum intro from Leparia. It's just some repeated tension-building horn lines uh, that releases into a bopping melody line, harmonized occasionally at the end of phrases. This sounds just like uh, Charlie Parker confirmation changes uh, to me. As On the title, uh, Ponisi and Fitzpatrick are both on tenor here. Uh, and solo in succession. Mecca has a nice swinging solo himself, and then Perrazzo shows a nice touch with clearly articulated lines. Uh, they all trade fours with the drums going around before another melody run and a final sandwich slice of the intro for an ending. <laughs> and we're going to end... Sandwich slice. <laughs> ...with a kind of... Uh, <laughs> usually end on a ballad, but they do here. Uh, Gross and Lawrence's uh, famous tune, Tenderly. Uh, and this is a real... A showpiece for uh, Fitzpatrick here as tenor sax starts it out with a cadenza into the famous melody uh, slow and way down low in the tenor range. Perazzo has pretty fills in between phrases. The tenor continues into a solo. It's melodic and has the right touch of emotion. Uh, he blows some cool descending lines and then gets a bit choked up midway. Uh, it, it's oh. It's a nice <laughs> kind of Honest, uh, emotional kind of a phrase there. Uh, Purrazzo has a solo which starts off delicately, some short phrases, and then nice legato tones. He builds it up with some weightier chords to bring the tenor back in for some more free blowing around the melody and draw out the draws out the cadenza ending on a fragile high note and some light tom touches from the drums. Ending with a ballad, And Mecca sitting out on on his own (laughs) recording is uh, a little bit surprising, (laughs) but he's a generous uh, leader here uh, showing off his uh, sax compatriots uh, to their advantage. Uh, Anyway, this is an enjoyable jazz recording, paying respect to the 60s blue note sound and yet even earlier boppy type things. The one Chick tune was great to hear again. And then uh, the rest of these originals, Mecca showing a flair for Horace Silver-styled sounds in his composition. Uh, Mecca's trumpet playing is swingingly melodic with fun ideas. The saxes are both great, uh, and I really like the tasty piano work from Perazzo. Also, nice drumming from Leperia as well. So I'm looking forward to hearing more of uh, Mecca's trumpet playing. Uh, interestingly, in the notes that they sent from DDE. It says, this is quote, a great peculiarity is that this album is also in Dolby Atmos and will be released in August in spatial audio produced by Mike yeah. Generali and mixed and mastered with Riccardo Matza in the experimental studios of Turin. Now, I'm not interested in spatial audio myself just being a two channel speaker person but
0: regarding I I limit myself to the five channel (laughs) Yes, Dolby Atmos needs more than that. You can go from seven speakers to like 20. It's really crazy. I felt
1: the mastering of what we've got on the streaming here is a bit flat. It sounds like a natural live recording but without much like final sheen or shine in the mastering Um, is my one kind of you know, criticism of the sound of the album—it's not bad, but it seems to be mis- missing that final polish added in mastering. So it might be interesting to see what uh, comes out in uh, August uh, if they, you know, change the sonics uh, at all. But uh, anyway, it's a nice recording of uh, looking back to uh, past ideas for fresh inspiration.
0: I wonder if they'll put it out as a super audio CD. That
1: could be cool. It would. A D D E. Well, I'm going to send them a link to the podcast. Well, we are big fans of the super audio yeah. CD and the. Uh, but put it out on yeah. CD anyway, so uh, we can buy it.
0: Yeah, we'll th- we'll take a CD. Yeah, so I, I liked this a lot too. As I said at the beginning, it's a cheerful, swinging affair most of the way through, and there are a few ballads too. And I want to point something out that I noticed on this: um, Italians in general are just really great at melody writing them. And shaping them, and uh you hear that a lot in um when when Italians get their hands on classical music, especially if it 's like from mm. you know other countries like French or german music you know, they 'll they'll really accentuate the melody and really do something special with it that 's the case here too. I just felt like all the the melodic playing on this record was just so spectacular, really beautifully shaped. And uh, you know, moving as well. Italians also do a lot of emotion, as you mentioned, and as I have direct experience <laughs> of, 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 often in a bad way. But um, now here it's really great. Um, there's a lot of fantastic phrasing. It's a very old school type of thing. Um, and I thought this album was really enjoyable. I liked it a lot. Yeah. So I want this one.
1: Yeah. yeah. Let's get it out on a CD.
0: Please. Yeah. Preferably a, preferably a fold-out one that has some information on the inside. Yeah.
1: yeah. We'll shift to something a little bit different in mood and instrumentation. We're going to get some vibes in this week with the release from yeah. Luigi Vitale on Artesuono label Gravity and uh, mm. Vitale on Vibraphone and we've got Mattia Magatelli on bass Max Trabucco on drums and on trumpet and trombone Mirko sicilino yeah. and uh, mm. yeah you don't get a lot of players who can do trumpet and tromboni. Uh, more on that as we come so uh, vitale began studying drums at age of 12 and he was admitted to the conservatory of salerno where by the age of 20 he graduated with honors in percussion instruments and then from 1998 onwards he started participating in master classes for vibraphone and marimba and uh, let's see he got the prize massimo urbani prize an audience award as a young talent in italian jazz in 2004 and then 2009 he graduated in jazz with honors from the conservatory of Castelfranco veneto maestro pietro tonolo and currently he's a professor of percussion at Liceo Musicale G. Marconi Corneliano, so there's his Sounds resume good there <laughs> and uh, yes this is an interesting album that makes a uh, n- nice uh, atmosphere of the vibes and uh, all original music here and we start out with a tune called Special Youth, uh, vibes intro and bass and drums join into that, it's a bit uh, like amorphous at first but a 7-4 rhythm forms uh, the melody oh. has cycling lines with rising intervals and Vitale adds some dissonance at the end of a line in the melody It's kind of uh, makes you pay attention Trabuco stays light on the cymbals and a soft snare underneath Magatelli is up first for a bass solo uh, He keeps a strong rhythmic pulse going through his melodies playing on and on Vitali up next for his own solo, and he mixes runs with rhythmic figures, still keeping a relaxed feel. The breadth of the vibraphone is uh, panned in the mix, uh, so low is in the left and high is in the right, so you feel like you're sitting mm-hmm. right in front of it. Uh, Turbuco is more active underneath uh, with fills now. Uh, the drums and bass make a short break uh, to give a softer reset for the melody theme again.
0: There's a really uh, beautiful vibraphone sound, too. It's really it's gentle. He, he sort of taps on it. It's lush. And it just sort of like, mm. yeah, it just expands out. Yeah. It's, it's it's really nice. There's something almost like, uh, you know, it's hard, it's hard to say. Yeah. But it's, it's got a slow sort of vibrato to it, too. It's, yeah, the timbre is really, really beautiful. Sound. You get the
1: most out of the vibes on this recording, yeah. Right. Um, track two, hurry up, please. Uh, vibes start with a line that contains gaps. To create anticipation, and uh, Cicillino comes in with a topsy-turvy trumpet line on top of that. Uh, it moves forward with syncopated accents matched by Trabuco. Uh, it gives off on a running swing, but holds up to a reset on a slower groove. Uh, Vitale solos first, and the groove continues to change up underneath. Magatelli mixes up bass figures to match nicely. Uh, Cicillino is next, starting with slower figures and getting more animated, when the beat takes off. He shows some good agility with his speedy lines and mixed articulations. That ties back into uh, the angular melody uh, carried by the trumpet with a little vibe break section to the end. Maybe you can help me with my pronunciation here. going to
0: help you with the meaning of this too. Somebody has to help uh, me anyway. I think <laughs> it's, it's uh, like
1: million-year-long fingers or something weird like that. Yeah, yeah.
0: it's dita lunghe milioni di anni and it means fingers that are millions of years long and what that meant, I don't know what that means. And I asked, I have, I oh. do have Italian friends, so I reached out to them and I said, "What does this mean?" And they didn't know oh. either. But one of them um, offered an interpretation. They said it's not an idiom, but they said the whole idea of having fingers that are millions of years, the millions of years long part could mean something like time. It means someone who's practiced a lot. Okay. So they have like a high level of skill. Okay. So. That's what they that's they think they they don't know if that's true but mm. they offered that as an interpretation.
1: Plus, I was wondering like the mm. idea of fingers versus the mallets of the vibes. You know what I mean? It's like a mm. extension of the fingers. I, mean, we,
0: I don't know. We we really don't Maybe know. We'll find out. Maybe we won't. <laughs> um, yeah. Anyway. Anyway, I think th- she thinks it means like an experienced musician. He's got lots of time mm. playing
1: sounds to me like uh, Cicilino switches to a flugelhorn on this one. And uh, I'd say it's that and bass, which started out. Uh, It's soft and lyrical over Magatelli's contrasting, pulsing bass. Uh, Drums and vibes join in, and uh, Vitali has some interesting fleet vibe figures uh, working into trills and runs and tight, speedy rhythmic figures. Uh, Cicelino comes in for some lyrical backing lines and gets speedier, into his own solo, he has some nice, snappy rhythmic licks and runs, uh, showing a bit of I thought uh, Randy Brecker kind of uh, influence, uh, which is a good thing. Uh, mm. Vibes and Flugelhorn. always yeah. a good thing. <laughs> vibes and flugelhorn weave around the melody with improvisations to the end. Track four, White Clouds, a solo bass intro for this one, letting the ends of phrases ring out with little slow trills. As vibes and drums come in softly, the bass carries the melody. It's up high, slow, and mysterious. Vibes takes center stage as it ebbs and flows with textured drumming rather than a beat. Vitali drops out for Magatelli to solo some more over Torabuco's light drums, and then Vitale joins in with lush ringing sounds. Things get quiet, and Vitale plays some final soft chordal ideas over cymbals to end it. Track 5, Reverence. Uh, Vitale starts out solo on a cycle of chords with shifting harmonic centers. He gets joined by drums and bass. Uh, Cicelino joins in with melody lines on top and continues on with some improvisations, including a little shake. The rhythmic motions stops and they leave Magatelli on his own for some solo bass. Then Torabuco joins back in with some cymbals when he gets a groove started. Once more, then vibes and trumpet are back, exchanging solo lines in an improvised conversation. Uh, Cicelino weaves in and around the harmonies with skillful lines and chromatic ideas, tying back into some melody and then more tension-building notes and fluttering tones. Track six, Baby Cot. I don't know what that is. <laughs> put the baby on the it's a baby cat. A cat for a baby, a baby I would
0: think. Yeah, Here, uh, we... It, it kind of sounds like a lullaby. Yeah, I, I think I'm so. Guessing. yeah. It because like, this is the know.
1: track where Cicelino switches to trombone, and it's a ballad with a simple but a pretty and longing melody, almost like a lullaby, as you say. Uh, Vitale doubles the melody in spots and provides counter lines. Magatelli gives it a light Latin pulse, and Torabuco plays uh, lightly underneath. Uh, Ciclino solos thoughtfully with well-spaced-out phrases and a nice tone in the higher register of the trombone. And Vitale has a subtle solo with soft-textured rhythmic figures, Uh, and they take it out with uh, another run through the melody. It's hard to develop uh, an amateur for both trumpet and trombone, so Ciclino impresses with his ability on both, with a nice tone on trombone as well. Track 7 is called Ben. Vitale starts out with a tentative vibe line with some harmonic tensions. He's joined by Magatelli doubling on a busy and rhythmic line. Uh, they split off and rejoin in spots. Tropical joins in when they reach a section of alternating dissonant chords. Suddenly Vitali is alone on the more tentative line, again rejoined by bass and drums into the dissonant chords. It works into a vibe improvisation over a rhythmic bass line by Magatelli joined into a unison bass and a vibed melody to the ending. We're going to end up with track eight, A Strange Waltz for a Weird Tuesday. <laughs> it's a nice title for It certainly was. Um, <laughs> beginning has got some bass bowing, rolling vibe uh, chords and breathy trumpet cries that make an amorphous and rubato start. Uh, Ciclino gets up high with some tension-building notes and then comes down, becoming more melodic. Vitale leads them into a joined motion toward the waltzing melody of the tune. Uh, Ciclino adds some more fluttering tones into a solo that has a lot of gaps, hesitating phrases, and searching lines. He has some attractive intervallic ideas in his lines uh, and stretches out with melodic ideas to the end. Uh, Vitale is next with a solo including... Uh, Rhythmic uh, melodic lines, fast runs, and interesting rhythmic chordal figures. And then Trabuco has light and tight snappy snare and cymbal figures going on underneath all that. Uh, Ciclino joins back in to carry the melody to the end. And there you have it. Uh, It's a recording that has an overall looseness and a lot of space. Uh, Vitale moves through it with rhythmically precise lines and figures in this more sort of free-following atmosphere created um, by the, you know, rhythmic trio. He has an interesting sense of harmony uh, for a vibraphonist, and the compositions have imaginative chords and original melodies. The trio ebbs and flows together with the often changing rhythmic feels. Ciclino matches the concept well on trumpet with inventive and reaching solo ideas. It's a recording that gives you the lushness of the vibraphone timbre uh, right up front mm, uh, in the recording, right. uh, while it's challenging your ear with unique compositions and harmonies.
0: Yeah, this is a pretty oddball album with its uh, strange rhythms, yeah. its rhythmic changes, odd time signatures. And for a vibraphone, which kind of I often, you know, I'm just used to hearing it played like, yeah. straightforwardly, which he does here, but mm. there are a lot of quick, unpredictable changes of rhythm, melodic line. Um, I really enjoyed most of all the vibraphone's fantastic tone and timbre, mm. almost like this, kind of like, you, you know how people will like kind of get musical tones out of like glasses filled with right. water. It kind of had that sort of like tapping on a glass ring, yeah, kind of feeling, getting this really luscious tone out of it, uh, you know, amplified and just sounding really great. Um, I mean, this mm. is in a good way. It's a great tone. Uh, it, it's a, it is a strange album, though. So I I called this intriguing i did enjoy it i thought it was interesting a little bit of an intellectual uh you know challenge there too which i Mm. appreciate i don't know
1: yeah i like the harmony take a
0: few more listens but i did like it yeah
1: and um boy if you want to if you want your vibraphone to sound just right you should find out however vitalius got his mic'd up because you know we we both (laughs) like vibes a lot and we've heard a lot on the yep. podcast, we've heard a few that sound great. We've heard a lot that you know sound uh, they don't capture the full kind of uh, richness well, and ringing of it. So
0: I think part of it is his attack, though, because he does he has more, he has a pretty gentle attack, yeah. unlike uh, uh, <laughs> the uh, the French vibraphones that we really liked from last oh, year. Yeah. Who was who that? Oh, Do you remember? I'm
1: trying to think now. I, I can't remember his name now. But he was he was it he was, was almost like the, yeah. the
0: yeah he was uh he was like the vibraphone was this wild animal he was trying to slay right <laughs> yeah.
1: there on stage beat repeatedly <laughs> that was cool style too yeah but this is it was good i
0: i have the album mm-hmm. i re- i did buy that one i liked it mm.
1: yeah but this is um but it's it's really more active, of a subtle yeah. uh, subtle attack and more sustained which was nice yeah
0: yeah it's killing me so I'm remembering the album cover I can't remember who the artist was now
1: all right we're gonna finish up with uh the Stefano Paolini Quartet. This is on IMD, Stefano Paolini. Label, stressin'.
0: And I would have made a joke about that title
1: if it was still the middle of the school semester, but I'm not stressed <laughs> no. anymore, so I could listen to this at my ease. Paolini is professor of jazz drums at the GB Martini Conservatory in Bologna. And actually, he graduated in clarinet the hmm. conservatory in Bologna, jazz Music. That would have been classical clarinet, I, I would think. think so. you know? At the F. Uh, yeah. Venezia Conservatory and Rovigo.
0: Although I have to say, we don't hear enough jazz clarinet anymore. That was Benny Goodman's yeah. instrument. Yeah, You don't hear enough hear of it. People play um, it anymore. But um,
1: at the age of 13, he was already professionally uh, working with uh, Nodola Jazz Band in concerts uh, on Glenn Miller's swing repertoire. I, I wonder, maybe he got his... Uh, compositional sense from, you know, working on those melodic instruments because he has some interesting uh, compositions here. He was, uh, he became a teacher of the rhythm and he was a professor of jazz drums at the conservatories F. Venezia in Rovigo F. Morlachi in uh, Perugia as well. And uh, here he is on uh, drums as a leader here. Simon Lamaida on alto sax, emilio marinelli on piano and another stefano stefano travaglini on bass yeah and we've got uh, all paulini's original compositions on this album which is another reason why i picked it when uh, we start out with the title track stressing uh, this gets off to a brisk start with everyone coming right in the angular melody yeah. is a tension-building stop-and-start theme uh, played intensely by uh, La Maida on alto sax. There's a contrasting section that pulls the groove back to a halftime feel. Travaglini walks the line at a furious pace, while Paolini keeps the cymbals riding uh, the swing feel uh, while simultaneously hitting the melody accents on Thompson's snare, it breaks into a solo for Lamita. First, he's intense and fluid with a wailing tone reaching that artful strangulation stage. Sometimes. <laughs> <laughs> Marinelli rings out the chords underneath on Rhodes, or at least a Rhodes sounding keyboard. Uh, I like that they Mm. use the halftime switches in the solos too. Uh, Marinelli trades eights a few times around on electric piano uh, or Rhodes with Paulini's drums, uh, once more around the angsty theme to close it out, an intense opening number uh, to get things started. Yeah, I
0: guess they were really stressing, they were stressing when they played yeah. this piece because it's it's. I said this was an explosive beginning to the album. It's pretty exciting. It was, yeah. exciting. I it was cranked it was really up. Great.
1: Yeah, yeah. And uh, in contrast, you were stressing, but now you're relaxing at home for track two. <laughs> nice combination. Uh, here we get a more phasey Rhodes sound uh, chord intro uh, from Marinelli. Uh setting a lazy syncopated Latiny groove joined by drums and bass. Lamida floats a sax line on top, more laid back on this tune. No more stress. Uh, there's a little Rhodes interlude before Lamida finishes out the melody. Uh, Marinelli is up first for a keyboard solo. Uh, he plays it relaxed with rhythmic phrases, working into some accented chords. Travaglini gets a bass solo. Next, it's rhythmic but smooth in attack. Or let's see, no, after that we got a sax solo. It stays relaxed and breezy, and then it ties back into the melody with some nice final flourishes to end it up. Track three, Cisco. Bass and soprano sax here. have switches over. Start out the lazy walking beat and melody of this tune. Actually, it's kind of a waltzing beat, I think. Uh, Paolini and Marinelli join in, uh, and the melody has nice little pauses from everyone as it moves along. Uh, Travaglini gets a bass solo first, working up into the higher register, and then down low with melodic lines. Uh, Lamida is next on soprano sax. He works into double-time fluid lines and then some legato tonguing figures with nice intensity, but keeping the relaxed mood of the tune. Marinelli comes up next on Rhodes, focusing on clearly articulated melodic lines of phrases that build on each other nicely. Paolini keeps things going underneath. Focusing on drum textures. They work back into a final run through the melody, with Paulini kicking it up more underneath uh, with fills under some final ideas from Lamida. Next tune, track four, bitter coffee. A quick drum pickup and this one gets an intense groove going right away in the bass and roads, a nice beat mixing up from Paulini. Lamida adds some improvised lines and a wail on alto before joining in on a matching riff to the groove. It sounds like he's got a doubling electronic effect going on on the sax here. Marinelli comes in first for a Rhodes solo with a dark and reverby sound. He makes it funky, adds tension with left hand harmonies. Lamita is next with an intense sax solo, including rising lines into screeches, rhythmic articulation, and some more wailing. Uh, bass and Rhodes keep the groove going for Paolini to do some drum play, and Lamita joins in, in the groove before they connect it back to the melody the final funky section of harmonically spacey sax lines a fun and funky tune
0: yeah funky would be the word the yeah. operative word for me i thought this is pretty cool
1: track five is called give me five and as you <laughs> might guess it's a tune in five four uh, it starts with an eight bar intro that sets that five four groove there's some nice or nasty distortion, depending on <laughs> how you think of it. On the low roads, chords and Lamida blows some ideas over the intro. It then turns into a minor bluesy, basically twelve-bar blues with a kind of two-bar tag uh, at the end of the two-bar, the twelve-bar blues. They go around the melody twice. Uh, Lamida is up for an alto solo. He mixes it up between fluid lines, bluesy figures, screeches, and choppy rhythmic phrases. Marinelli's next. Making the most out of the distorted electric piano sound, with fun running lines and some adventurous harmonic departures, then bass and keyboards groove around uh, on the opening riff idea for Paulini to get some intense drumming underneath. Lamida joins in on the riff before launching into a couple more runs around the minor blues melody with the tag phrase uh, that repeats.
0: I actually, I should confused that uh, that if it's a rose it I, I the it's got a distorted effect on it. I actually confused it with a guitar at points I was like yeah, is this a guitar No, is the, yeah, it's I'm it's not the sure keyboard. like
1: you know it could be like an emulator clone kind of thing uh, but huh. it, it, in this recording you're getting some different effects with you know kind of phasey things distortion right. and what goes on especially on the later tracks let's see track 6 anesthesia it's so a spacey minor keyboard washes at the beginning of this, and a slow and surprising 11 eighths time signature here. Wow. Um, marked out on cymbals by Paulini. Uh, it, well, it's 11 eighth or at least group into six and then five beat kind of okay. uh, phrases. Lamita blows some ideas over the intro into a kind of R&B fused minor melody theme. There's a nice heartbeat bass pulse from Travaglini's bass, The melody has nice harmonic twists that kind of go into major in spots and then has a really interesting accented section with a surprising lifting modulation right before the end of the melody line. Uh, The next time around is a bass solo for Travaglini. keeps the rhythmic pulse through his melody lines. Uh, Marinelli follows on keyboards, playing funky, phrased, and phased lines (laughs) with the sounds panning from left to right and back again in the mix uh, they change up the groove uh, to more of a swing feel during his solo with walking bass lines from Travaglini uh, Lamaita comes back in for once around the uh, melody theme before launching into his own improvisation and they also change up the groove nicely again under him uh, he solos on to the end over a final hold uh, it's a nice R&B tinged tune and an odd time signature that they make sound and feel natural hmm. then we've got track 7 generale cluster, and it's a rhythmic and harmonic cluster indeed. At the beginning, <laughs> with some uh, electronic effects added on both the keys and sax, uh, Paulini mixes it up with tight drumming underneath. A uh, groove sets in after a minute, uh, with pulsing bass, and the time marked out by Paulini's cymbals. A uh, blues-like progression ensues, and lamida solos over it with his electronically enhanced sax. Uh, Pulling out interesting harmonic effects to the lines. Now, this is really weird. Uh, It's like a 12-bar blues, but there's an extra seven beats at the end of it. So it's Hmm. in four, but there's not two complete bars. I count seven, four plus three before the cycle repeats. You figure it out. (laughs) (laughs) Anyway, Marinelli is next with a keyboard solo, including interesting distortion and quivering tones. Uh, Lamida comes back for a few more rounds on sax with no effects, just straight out, and then Travaglini gets a go on the bass. Uh, Lamida joins back for another few rounds of the melody with effects. Uh, this is maybe the most uh, experimental one here.
0: You can say it's an out there track. I even said the whole thing sounds like outer space. Yeah. <laughs> Perhaps the cluster of the title is a star cluster. It, yeah. it was. And, yeah. It was pretty pretty out there.
1: It was uh, interesting. It's blues, but I'm not sure about those lengths. It seems like there's uh, four and three between them. Hmm. Anyway, they held it all together, however that they can do that. Uh, track eight is Scooby-Doo, but hmm. not Where Are You Now? Yeah, <laughs> not the famous Scooby-Doo theme um,
0: that, that rock bands like
1: to play. <laughs> this is um, a minor swinging 6-8 modal tune, minor modal with Marinelli switching to organ or at least like a uh, organ clone kind of sound here. Paulini has a nice groove going in the cymbals. Lamida improvises over the eight-bar intro, then takes the melody that has uh, similar phrases repeating with alt, but the endings alternate uh, in the melody. Uh, Lamida continues on in a solo over the minor modal progression, mixing up running lines and more tension-building, slower phrases with his edgy tone. Uh, Marinelli gets an organ solo next, lots of chasing lines, and then some intense higher chords ending with some descending phrases. Uh, La Maida brings back the melody for another round, then continues on with some improvisations, while Paolini mixes up some nice drumming underneath it until it fades out. And we're going to end up with the final track, 9, 3, and 4. Marinelli whips up a Latin keyboard intro here of a chord progression, uh, very rhythmic. Paolini adds fills on the toms for a latiny feel, Travaglini a bass pulse until Lamida comes in on the melody on soprano sax. Very nice cymbal work and clicky groove underneath by Paolini mixing it up with Tom fills too. Lamida continues on with a soprano solo having some fun in the upper register and then lots of fluid lines locking into the latin beat nicely. Manelli is next on a rhythmic electric piano solo. Lamida goes around the melody once more and then they take it into the Latin intro piano part to vamp out with Paolini beating it out on the drums underneath until it fades away. This is a fun recording, lots of variety in Paolini's original compositions. There's some really tricky meter ideas going on, uh, changing grooves underneath everything, but everyone locks in together. Lamida's alto sax adds intensity with his cutting edge tone. Uh, when he wants it, he can just have that searing kind of intensity to it. And he also s- switches to soprano on a couple tunes that adds more variety. Paolini shows off nice drumming technique, but uh, overall more finesse, I feel. He's not a heavy hitter, but uh, listen to the subtleties in his playing, uh, the little fills and textures along the way. Uh, shows that he's a very musical drummer and, uh, you know, his sense of composition also impressive, you know, for a drummer, the, the interesting harmonic ideas and his drums, add nice textures to everything. I like the overall energetic performances here. It's an exciting album, uh, leads you through some di- lots of different feels and uh, interesting arrangements.
0: Yeah, I, I tend to favor finesse players over Power players, although yeah, I like too. both, yeah, but yeah. yeah, finesse always kind of gets me. Um, yeah, this isn't a really appealing album. There's a lot of variety, as you said. The playing is just fantastic all the way through. I thought, and I actually liked the experimentation with the sounds. Some of them were really yeah, odd, I kind of but it, yeah. I thought it was fun. Uh, the one annoying thing, I we say this every once in a while, but I don't like when you fade a track on a jazz song, uh, yes? yeah. especially the Scooby Doo fades on a solo. <laughs> that's What yeah. What was going to happen? Well, probably nothing. Well, they would have put it on. You know, they would have let it go through. But um, that always gets me. But no worries. It, there's plenty to enjoy. And, uh, you know, that's the what they decided to do. Who knows? I don't know. Yeah.
1: But I liked it a lot. Yeah. Yeah, it's a lot of fun. I like all these recordings. So there's a lot of variety here. And what I like, we've checked out lots of European jazz on the podcast. And different places have different scenes going on. Uh, there's certainly a, always a lot of stuff going on in France, all over Scandinavian countries, and Italy. Mm. Hmm. And there's a lot of variety in each of those scenes too. Especially in Italy, I think there's a lot of you know people doing different kinds of styles and uh, adding a lot of new kind of uh, directions in jazz. And so I'm always wanting to check out uh, what's going on. And you've got multi generations. Yeah. doing different things and then collaborating together which is nice and i think that is going to keep you know fresh infusion into uh, what's going on so yeah, i've always yeah. got to keep my finger on the pulse of you know italian jazz things because a lot of recordings coming out all the time
0: yeah as with the classical music of the baroque era they are virtuosic and highly melodic they really favor those two yeah. things yeah and i yeah it's, it's really happening there too well, you can kind of tell that uh, it's now nighttime here in Japan. We start in the evening and tend to end in the dark because the cicadas have now gone quiet. I rather really like that about the cicadas. They go to bed when you do.
1: <laughs> you know, yeah, they don't they stop making noise until up. the sun's out. Otherwise, it's too hot to keep the window open and sleep uh, this time of year. But uh, yeah. it's good that they give you a little bit of peace. Yeah, that is nice of them. So today is uh, a little extension of our tour Italy. Uh, what are we going to uh, go to next week? Are we going to do the American thing? I think so. Week? I
0: think I'm finally going to get that William Bolcom album. As I have time this okay. week, let's do it. I'm really up for this. I'm re- ready to put it on tomorrow and start digging right. through that. We got some good. I got some good American classical uh, composers that I want to do. I figure I'll put them all together. It'll all be contemporary composers. Actually, okay. some some older than others, but um, I think I know all...
1: one of them, and I'm pretty enthusiastic about uh, right. that one is too. I was actually listening to the ragtime today, and yeah. uh, I've got a lot of uh, yeah interesting things to say about that. Um, I yeah, didn't think was... you could uh, squeeze so much out of a rag as <laughs> he does. <laughs> as William does. Yeah, uh, but yeah. Uh, he really you know, plums that uh, to uh, creative ideas. I'm pretty interested in hearing that.
0: Yeah, more on that next week. Yeah, I have
1: three recordings in mind uh, for, re- for American uh, things to do. Uh, there'll be some overlap in performers, but a lot of variety in the instrumentation. Well, thanks for sticking with us to the end of episode 74 of Adult Music. Always bringing you the best new classical and jazz releases. Thanks, as always, to Rich and the team at Fast Signs Staten Island for our glowing neon logo. Rich always listens to the podcast, at least that's what you tell us. So. That's, that's what he says. He listens to the whole thing every week. Thanks very much. And uh, thanks to all our listeners. Remember to check us out on uh, Facebook if you want to get the playlist for next week, right after this podcast is released. You can also get little tidbits during the week that'll give you a hint at what might be coming up in the future. Also, if you want to get in touch with us directly, Adult Music Podcast, all one word, at gmail.com is our email. And next week, we'll uh, go a little bit American again for some yeah. contemporary classical music. And... really new at least one of them's just fresh out this week uh, jazz released by one of our favorite musicians so a lot to look forward to is that it then I guess that's it